everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. On this episode of the show, I sat down with Jeronimo Masarasa. Um, this is actually his second time on the podcast. I, I really enjoyed our first conversation. Uh, Jeronimo is a really fascinating guy. He works for an organization called ICERS, uh, I believe the International Center for Ethnobotanical Education and Research service, if I'm getting that correct. I uh, probably should have made a note of that beforehand. But um, uh, I worked for a long time at a big ayahuasca center, plant medicine center called the Temple of the Way of Light. And ICERS worked in conjunction with them doing, uh, uh, I think at that point, the, the longest uh, or the biggest long-term ayahuasca um, efficacy uh, research project. Uh, I met uh, my friend Irene uh, Perez, who uh, was 
came down and, and was working on that project. I also interviewed her. Um, so Geronimo reached out to me a, a while ago. Uh, ICERS has created a course, uh, which is very interesting for plant medicine facilitators, uh, focusing on harm reduction, um, which I think is a really important topic, uh, kind of, as he said, better practices, how to do this work well, uh, what are certain protocols, um, how does one going, going, uh, go about doing this work in, in a better way, uh, constantly learning, uh, learning from, uh, I think, a lot of different people's experiences, uh, uh, different plant medicine centers, people who've been practice, uh, practitioners uh, in this work, uh, integrative aspects, uh, all the way from pre-screening to um, information that's giving to, to, to forms to, to how one sets up certain ceremonial aspects. Uh, th there's a lot that goes into this work, and um, I, I think the objective of this course is, is really Really good um, because this work is uh, spreading very quickly out into uh, contexts which, uh, as this course also says, are non-indigenous or non-traditional contexts. Um, and and so, uh, how to really train people to do this work better, which is uh, which is very important. Um, so it was a fascinating conversation. I, I really enjoyed sitting down with him. Uh, I, I always uh, enjoy listening to him talk. Uh, he, he's a very grounded guy, very wise guy has a lot of knowledge, talks from his own experience um, uh, doing this work for a long time, working with ayahuasca, working with different plants uh, from the organizational standpoint of ICERs who, again, do do great work. Uh, so we, we talked about this course, uh, uh, why it was formed, uh, some of the different aspects of it, um, and, and just a, a lot about this work in general. So um, this was a really great, great conversation. I, I, I expected it would be, and it, it kind of lived up to to everything that, that I thought it would be. So there's a lot of information in here, and I think you all uh, will really get a, a lot out of it, whether uh, you're interested in, in facilitation at some point or, or not even that, but just uh, interested in plants and, 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 and how this work can be done well and, and what are some of the things to think about, uh, because I think a lot of these things often aren't really thought about or, or talked about, and, and, and we got into some, some of the, the, the real nitty-gritty and, and, and important topics of this. So uh, I hope you all enjoy it. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really good option. It's a website. You can sign up for as little uh, as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Uh, to all the people who have donated in that way, to all the patrons, thank you very much for your support. As always, I really appreciate it. And if you're able to do that, uh, thank you in advance. As we mentioned a little bit about during this talk, uh, the thing I really like about that uh, platform platform is it works in this idea of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining uh, something from this podcast, then that's a, a way and an opportunity to, to give back. Um, if you're not able to do that, uh, always helping with the algorithms uh, is really useful in getting the show out to a bigger audience. So if you're watching uh, this, the, the video version on YouTube, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section, all of those things really help. Uh, there's also a 
the video version on Spotify now as well, uh, and and Rumble, uh, and then the audio version, uh, Apple Podcast and Spotify are the big ones. So uh, subscribing to the show or following it, and also with Apple Podcasts, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. Uh, so I think that's it. Uh, without further ado, here is my conversation with Heronima. Actually, might be the first person who who was on this podcast now for a second time as a solo. I, I've had a couple people come on as, as kind of panels for for multiple times, but uh, you you may now have the honor of, of, of the first person who we've done a, a round two with as an individual. Um, thank you, Jason. Thank you for the honor. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Always happy to be yeah. here. Um so if anyone is interested, they, they can go back to our previous conversation and I think um, probably learn a bit more about your, your history, because I, I think we talked quite a while about that. Um, but maybe just uh, kind of as a brief overview, maybe can you just say a little bit about your, yourself and your history and, and, and what brought you to, to ICERS and the work that you do? Yes, um, my name is Geronimo. I am a director of social innovation at the ICS Foundation. ICS is a foundation based out of Barcelona. And um, um, social innovation, social means uh, groups of people and innovation means new things. So social innovation has to do with getting groups of people to do new things. Um, in my case, uh, my work focuses around the integration of ceremonial plant work outside of the countries of origin. Uh, so the outside of the Amazon, I mostly work with people who work with ayahuasca and similar plants. Um, of course, this is there's nothing new about this. This this has been done in the in the countries of origin for thousands of years, but it's new for us. It is new for what you could call global north societies or non-Amazonian countries, or you know. Um, and then that's where the you say the social innovation part comes. Uh, so I think a lot about what it would take to build the future in which the ceremonial use of these plants can be integrated in our societies and can be practiced legally and safely. Um, and also, you know, it can be hopefully of as much, much benefit to us as we can see it is to the cultures of origin. Um, so that's sort of the, the gist of it. I think a lot about the future of ceremonial plant work and I think about what it would take to make it happen in our society. I think that is inevitable. I think one day in the future, I don't know if it will take five or 10 or 20 or 50 years, but I think it's inevitable that the expansion of these plants will eventually sort of be an accepted thing. It will be a fact in our societies, much like acupuncture is and other sort of uh, practices that are come from other, other cultures or yoga or, you know, or even when you think about sort of new jobs like coaching, you know, coaching didn't exist 40 years ago and now it's a perfectly organized thing. So I, 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 I think I understand the sort of ceremonial plant work as a sort of new profession that is has now arriving to our societies, and it will take some time before it is fully integrated. 
and there's a number of barriers, but I work uh, with these things and around these things. Um, and this has different aspects, and some aspects need to happen at the sort of at the policy level, at the sort of international law level. Some other aspects need to happen at the local administrative level, and some aspects need to happen at the level of the facilitators and the practitioners themselves in terms of what would it take, you know, for, you know, a group, an organization of people who work with plants to be able to, you know, sit down and begin to negotiate with the administration of their country, you know, what it would take to sort of integrate this work. And when we look at other uh, professions that have emerged over the years, basically this process means that the, the collective has to organize, the collective has to self-regulate, they have to, they have to choose a, you know, sort of a set of minimum ethical standards or best practices or call it what you will. And then and then the, the collective has to have representativity. So there's some sort of organization that can say that they represent, if not all of the people doing this, certainly a majority of it. Um, and then a conversation can begin to be had, or this is the way that it's happened before with other collectives. So this is sort of the model um, that we work upon. Uh, my work is, uh, it happens in the immediate term, but there's a lot of sort of long-term thinking. I'm trying to think not of the situation as it is today, but the situation as it could be 10, 15 or 20 years into the future. Uh, and then what steps need to be taken today in order to slowly make it there. Um, but basically, I think underlying all of this, it is uh, an understanding, like I said, that this is unavoidable. So when I, when I look at the expansion, for example, of ayahuasca, um, uh, because ayahuasca, as you know, is not a plant, but it's, it's a formula, it's a preparation of two plants. So there's a sort of how-to. <laughs> there's and there's When there's a how-to and there's a formula, one can imagine a sort of year zero. One can imagine a moment of one person or maybe several persons in different indigenous groups in the Amazon who for the first time put together these two plants. And then that is there's a first time. And then this first time grows from this one person or group of persons to other groups, to other communities. Now there's 72 indigenous groups or more in the Amazon that are used ayahuasca traditionally. Then it jumped to the cities, then it jumped outside of the countries, then it jumped, you know, and now you can find it everywhere in the world. So the process of expansion of this has been always there. It's, this has always been expanding. Um, and it expands from person to person. I believe this will continue. I think it's unavoidable. It's in the nature of this. So how can we best accompany and sort of foster and be at the service of this process so it, 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 it lands in the best possible of ways? And what can we learn from the cultures of origin in terms of people who have had long relationships with this uh, and how they relate to these substances and which parts of it can we learn uh, without taking and appropriating sort of cultural forms that don't belong to us. And this is a very fine line. It's all part of the sort of the work that I do. Uh, uh, or, or, or sort of the, the, the it, it, it informs, you know, yeah, my work, you know, the projects that I, that I, that I lead or run and, and how I present or how, how I sort of approach, uh, how, I, how I try to approach things. Yeah, great. Can, can you mention briefly, just as an overview, uh, who ICIRS is and, and, and what that organization, what their 
kind of what their mission is? Yeah, ICIRS is a uh, foundation. It's a nonprofit uh, foundation. It's been now entering its thirteenth year of existence. It's based out of Barcelona. Um, it's a small group of us. I think there's about fifteen people working full time. Maybe there's another ten or fifteen part time. Some volunteers, maybe thirty, thirty-five people total. And uh, for the past thirteen years, we've been working on um, trying to change the relationship of what you could call Global North societies to what we have uh, called ethnobotanicals or, or natural indigenous medicine. So a plants that are, a group of plants that have a, a history of traditional use that is quite sort of long and established. Um, in practice, most of our work revolves around ayahuasca, iboga, and coca, um, and the coca leaf. In theory, this in our work also includes things. It would include things as tobacco and mushrooms, and 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 you know, and San Pedro, you know, peyote, and many other plants. But you know, uh, most of our work today is around these things. So, how do we change the relationship of our societies to these and uh, to these plants? And how do we do this while being in right relationship to the cultures of origin? Um, it's sort of Icir's um, mission and the work that we do. So this happens at many levels. Again, one part of it uh, happens at the sort of uh, policy level. So we have consulting status with the United Nations and, you know, we try to prepare and present and protect sort of the role of indigenous knowledge and indigenous medicines at the level and at the international level. Um, another very important important part of it has to do with scientific research and so we do a lot of research for the most we're the research group with the most publications about ayahuasca for example in scientific medicine in scientific literature um, and we do research in many areas but basically it, we try to we do research where there's where we find that there's gaps in the knowledge um, because we're a non-profit we can do research that is necessary uh, uh, that where the knowledge is needed, not necessarily that there's that the research that will necessarily make money or be profitable, and and this is and this is um, this is helpful uh, for certain types of knowledge. So, for example, we've done research recently on you know the impact on on public health of uh, of ayahuasca use. So there's there's been some researchers, more and more research about you know what are the you know, medical potentials of ayahuasca, ayahuasca for depression, ayahuasca for Alzheimer's, etc., etc., neural growth, neural growth in ayahuasca, etc., etc. Not much research done, not as, not as much research done on what where, you know, normal people who use ayahuasca are like. Uh, just what is it, what is out there, literally, and what is the effect that ayahuasca is having out there on people who most of them don't have medical conditions, but they drink anyway. So that's some of the research uh, an example of the research we've done that's all done long-term, you know, use, uh, you know, challenging or adverse effects. Um, we're also doing research on iboga for the cessation of um, of opioid addiction, clinical research in hospital in Barcelona, which for some reason, I mean, for many reasons, that is a study that should have happened 20 years ago. Uh, and it's finally uh, um, happening. So it's just people who have long-term uses of methadone who are incredibly it's a sort of substitute for people who are addicted to opioids it's incredibly difficult to quit people usually do methadone for their whole lives and now we're and nobody was doing the actual clinical research to show if you could you know 
if Iboga would be useful in getting people, Ibogaine would be useful in getting people of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of methadone. So we're, we're doing that now, that research. Um, so that's policy. That is, uh, and then there's, uh, there, that is research. And there's also work that we do at the sort of, um, more activist level with the communities. We organize the Ayahuasca conference. You know, they, we do the work that I do with these courses, you know, on safety. We also have the Ayahuasca Defense Fund where we give legal support to people who have been arrested because of, you know, legal incidents. People just arrested people who've had legal incidents around plants, around these plants. We believe that nobody should go to jail for working with these plants. So we help people who are, uh, who have some sort of legal incident with this. We advise their legal teams. We can help with the, you know, scientific experts, et cetera, et cetera. So as you see, again, it's very, um, sort of multi-faceted and multi-disciplinary because the, the the issues themselves have this nature. So they happen at many levels. They happen individually at the individual level and at the health of the individual and the impact that they have individual. They have at the, they happen at the community level and how the community gets organized and self-regulates. They happens at the sort of administrative level, you know, and what are the encounters between between the facilitators and the administrations legally, etc. And then it happens sort of like at, in, at like the international pol- policy level as well. And what type of you know. Uh, uh, treaties and laws and regulations are affecting these things and what need to change to sort of adapt again to what are new practices for us. Right now, the, the sort of a lot of the legal framework that we have is very, very old. It's, you know, 40, 50, some of, you know, the, 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 some of them are 60 or 70 year old treaties. Uh, and the world has changed a lot since, but the treaties haven't. So there's also work that needs to happen at this level. I should I should have a, a shorter answer to this question, but it, but it, but it's but it's uh, but it's it it is it is like this. It is sort of like a, a multifaceted issue. It cannot really be approached uh, at just at just one level. So we basically try to help where help is needed uh, on this big issue, and we find that it's needed at many levels. So we have you know many many different sort of initiatives that work around these things. So recently, um, you you introduced a course which uh, I think even the the way you you frame it is, is very interesting. It it's a in, increasing the safety of ayahuasca sessions and and kind of the the subtitle is um, a harm reduction course for facilitators in non traditional contexts. So what was what was the impetus for for starting that? What was there issues that you saw kind of arising in this field that, that you felt this course would um, maybe begin to to give some light or some different perspectives like like what was the what was the foundation of, of wanting to release this course yes, I mean we, we've always um, worked you know from the sort of I would say from the from the position or, or the perspective that you know, while there, while there is great promise, um, we believe that there's great promise for, for these plants and these practices to, you know, to be at the very least, you know, useful and helpful uh, in our societies, as we can see they are in indigenous societies. There's also certain issues um, that come. These are, you know, powerful, uh, they're powerful plants and they're powerful experiences and powerful things like like a backhoe or like fire, you know, they can go 
either way, they're sort of they're 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 ambiguous in this. You know, fire can keep people warm and you know create amazing food, and it can also burn down houses, right? I mean, we manage fire with all its dangers, and you know that's why fire is not illegal, because we understand even though it's dangerous, there's ways to handle it. You know, similarly, vehicles, you know, high-power vehicles, cars and stuff can be, you know, very, very useful and they can take somebody very quickly to a hospital, but they can also create a huge accident and cause trouble. And then we don't ban cars. We actually manage their, you know, through, you know, regulations and laws and traffic signs and driver's licenses, you know, and insurance companies and all of these things are there so that, you know, cars, which are admittedly, you know, very vehicles, very, very powerful and necessary vehicles that come with some associated dangers. You know, can be managed in a way where we think, okay, we, we, we can, you know, it's 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 uh, we, we are we are we are managing the, the risks. Um, so we find in almost everything in our societies, the world is this way. You know, this goes this goes for medicine. You know, most medicines are also poisons. No, most not all of them. You know, you can, you know, aspirin is very. It's very, uh, you know, it's a very, it's a very important medicine, but it only takes two or three boxes to give somebody an ulcer and kill them, you know. So, you know, and you know, we find that things at the beginning they tend to there's more mistakes. There was more car accidents, you know, 200 years ago and 100 years ago and 200 years ago when cars began than there are now, and you know, when X-rays began, you know, there was also a lot more accidents that happened than there are now as we learn. So, we, we there's a process by which we learn to basically manage the the risks that come associated with it, these things. And we find that with plant medicines, you know, because they are new, um, generally speaking, they're very, very, for example, ayahuasca, generally speaking, ayahuasca is quite safe. It's, you know, physically very safe for healthy people. You know, it's not very toxic at all. It's not addictive, you know. Um, psychologically, it's also quite safe also for psychologically healthy people. Uh, um, but there's also some dangers. There's there's interactions with medications. There's people, you know, there's 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 a, a form of you know sort of fragility, you know, uh, which is either physical or psychological, for which it might be too much. It might be too much of a strong experience, just like you know, for certain people, a roller coaster is not a good idea, and that doesn't mean that you know roller coasters should be banned. Uh, lots of people ride roller coasters. Mostly, they're healthy people. You know, this is this is this is sort of this is sort of um, and there's so this 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 process by which um, you know we learn to manage uh, sort of the powerful things um, in the point to the point where the the their um, their benefits are maximized and their and their risks are minimized. It's sort of an organic process. We can see human beings and human societies are very very good at this. We really are. We're quite good at managing dangerous things. And we can, you can see how we do with fire and with knives and with vehicles and with roller coasters and, you know, and with many, many things that, you know, we actually handle quite well. You can also see this in, you know, in indigenous societies, you know, for example, you know, the staple diet of the Amazonian, of many Amazonian groups is what is called bitter manioc. Bitter manioc is a tuber. Um, and it is incredibly toxic. It, it is filled with cyanide. Cyanide is one of the most powerful poisons. As you know, there's a famous po poison in, in antiquity for the Greeks, etc. Here's this tuber that is completely filled with poison, literally. And yet indigenous people in their long relationship with it have figured this very complicated, complex way by which the tuber is picked, raised, picked up, grated, you know, uh, squeezed and then toasted, by which all of the poison can... can uh, 
can be drawn out of this, and not only it can be used as a food, it can be used as the staple food, so the main food being consumed, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the, the staple of the, of the diet is actually this incredibly toxic plant. So we, human beings are good at this. We do this well, actually, societies. They, we, we, do, we do this quite well, uh, uh, and we do it by ourselves. It ha it's a process that happens organically through sort of collective learning. However, when things are hidden, when things happen in clandestinity, when things, uh, when people cannot openly talk to each other or discuss these things, when the collective cannot openly learn, then these things, instead of moving very fast, they move very, very slowly. So this is the, this is because it, they tend to get pocketed in sort of isolated groups that are working on this, but they're not learning from one another. So um, out of this uh, realization, you know, and out of my own work in which through the years uh, um, I've, you know, met and spoken with, you know, hundreds of people that I've working, that are working with ayahuasca from all the way from very, very traditional ways in the Amazon, all the way to very sort of westernized ways, uh, and finding that in all of these different groups, which are many, it's very, very large, there is always many, many um, useful sort of um, wisdom, you could call them better practices, um, around the safety, uh, how to safely use these plants. But, but these practices are not spreading, they're not pollinizing each other, people are not learning so much from each other, because they don't know of each other's existence, because they're not in communication, and because people tend to uh, uh, sometimes be very private about these things. And in these we're not benefiting or we're not learning as fast as we would otherwise learn. You know, I will give you a, another example of this. In the 80s, you know, two baristas, I forgot their name, coffee baristas, figure out that they could draw these flowers uh, on, the, on the latte uh, coffees. And at first they were very, very simple. There was just a very, very sort of simple flower that they started doing. And as I said, the name and last name of these two people are known. I, I don't, I can't remember, but this is a true story. Now, in the 40 years since, you know, we've gone to, from drawing, you know, a very simple flower from to drawing incredibly complex, you know, people now can make, you know, Mona Lisa. They can paint paintings in your latte form, right? That's how good uh, we are, you know, and at learning things, you know, when this is happen, when, when this happens collectively, and when knowledge can can flow, because for these reasons, it wasn't. We had the idea to start uh, training, you know, certain uh, courses that would be directed not at not at people who wanted to work to learn how to work with plants, but at people who were already working with plants and who could benefit from sort of higher level. Uh, 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 sort of safety protocols uh, and useful information from everything that we had learned and also from everything that we had learned because we have run a free support service now for 10 years or we have fielded more than 1,000 cases of people having, you know, uh, questions, doubts and also difficult experiences with plants. So we have gathered a lot of knowledge that is not knowledge that is ours but is knowledge that is out there you know, and we have simply been able to sort of gather these by, by, by fact of talking to everybody or to talking to so many people and seeing so many different implementations and circumstances. And all of this we poured into these courses um, with the idea of creating spaces for collective learning where people can learn from one each other and from the knowledge of the collective 
and generally with the idea of sort of beginning to raise the level of responsibility and safety around this work because this is also going to be another very important piece if we ever want to legitimize these practices, if we ever want to sit at the table of the administrations and demand that we, you know, that these practices are integrated, except, are regulated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is this is this is a necessary first step. Um, um, out of out of this came two courses. One course is aimed at um, facilitators, at people who are already organizing plant sessions, whether they're as facilitators, as assistants, or even just as organizers for the people. And this course is on safety um, and, and harm reduction, and it covers every part of this life cycle, from this previous screening to safety during the ceremony to follow-up and safety after the ceremony. And then there's a second course that is an integration training. And this one is directed at, you know, mental health uh, providers and at care professionals. And this course is just on integration. So this has to do a lot more with sort of supporting people after the experience uh, and how one can sort of give this, can shape, give shape to this. Um, Again, I should have a shorter answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's great, Hieronimo. Um, I, I would imagine for a lot of people listening, uh, some, some of these distinctions are quite clear, and for other people, some of them may not be. And, and, and one that comes to mind uh, is this word facilitation or facilitator. How would you define that? And, and how would you, you parse that out from something like the word shaman or curandero or healer? Do you, do you define those in a certain way? It's very, it's very, it's very, when you, when you, when you, when you look at the history of these plants, you know, the plants that I just work with, works with a majority of them and these practices come from South America, you know, peyote, San Pedro, ayahuasca, mushrooms. Um, and, the, and the, and the majority of them have, uh, you know, all of them actually have a long history of traditional use by indigenous groups. And many, many of them had reached, for example, coca leaf, for example, tobacco, you know, we, you know, outside of the, countries of origin have a relationship with these plants that go already hundreds of years. You know, we've been using tobacco for hundreds of years. We've been using ayahuasca for hundreds of years, not ayahuasca, sorry, um, um, uh, but coca and coca products. However, our relationship to these plants doesn't resemble at all the relationship that the original groups have to them. Tobacco is a great example of this, but also the coca leaf. Um, so when we look at the uh, cultures of origin, which we see that these plants are revered, enormously respected, and they are integral and very, very important part of the culture, and that their their role, generally speaking, um, has to do with the with the with the renewal, or the or the yeah the renewal of the culture. Um, so for example. Uh, coca leaf in sort of for the Witoto or for the Kogi or for the Barasana or other groups that have been using traditionally for a long time um, is not only, you know, a sort of, you know, very important food supplement and also sort of, you know, used to in, in, in strenuous work 
circumstances, but it's absolutely key part in a series of practices or rituals that basically revolve around building community consensus. It is Kokalif is chewed in when the community, when the group gathers to talk. And what they are, what is being discussed and what is being built are very often the day-to-day -day activities of the community and what needs to be decided. And, and for this, it becomes a sort of fuel, a fuel for speaking and a fuel for listening. Um, I have been fortunate enough to sit in a number of, you know, of these circles of mamaderos for, you know, with, with the Barasana and also with the Kogi and to, and to sort of watch this process in action of how communities build through building consensus, through creating space for people to talk. And this is very, very different from the debates that we have or that our politicians have uh, in which one person is supposed to win and people are interrupting each other all the time. And they're also very, very different from, with all due respect, you know, the cocaine parties or with none of the respect, I don't know, of the cocaine parties of the West where everybody talks and nobody listens. It's very, very, very different, right? So, and we can see this for tobacco, for coca, we can see this for mushrooms, even mushrooms doesn't at all res resemble uh, the, the sort of indigenous use that we, that, you know, the, the use that we give them. We can, we can see it even, even this from, for cocoa, you know, uh, cacao, you know, which used to be, uh, you know, it's a bitter drink that was, you know, very, very popular in South America and we turned into some sort of sweet tablet. It, it's been like this again and again and again until ayahuasca. And then with ayahuasca, something sort of extraordinary happens or something very, very new happens. Something that has never happened before, something exceptional. And that's if, if you look at a more or less regular ayahuasca ceremony in Europe, you will see something that that looks like an ayahuasca ceremony in the Amazon. It, rec it recognizably, of course, there's many differences, but there's a number of elements that are very, very similar. So there's a group that sits and they gather together. There's a person who guides the ceremony, who serves and gorges the dose, the dose for everybody. This person is responsible for the well-being of everybody there. This person usually creates some sort of performance, usually around music, that sort of that sort of guides and modulates the effects of the plants. So what we have is the ritual use of plants. Um, and not only that, it's a ritual use that actually harks back, that recognizably connects back to the source, the indigenous uses. This is this has never happened before. We have in the West never taken a South American power sacred plant and used it, you know, or, or, or integrated it in any way that in any way resembled what the cultures of origin were doing. This is where, to get back to your question, this issue about curanderos and shamans and stuff gets tricky. Um, um, so there is, in a, in a way, a link to all of these. There's also many important differences. And there is a, also a very, very large cultural gap that some people make closer and some people don't. So, you know, in the, in the, in the people that still do this, that sort of gather a group of people and they serve and they go to the doors and they're responsible for everybody's experience. Some of these people working in Europe, you know, have been, have spent many, many years of South America learning from indigenous people and everything, the ritual, the songs, and the way they structure themselves is very, very similar to what happens in South America. And, you know, 
And then some people, actually, they still get a group and gather in this, but they have, some of them have never been to South America, and they feel, even in some cases, no particular connection to that. And yet still, a lot of what they're doing, a lot of the, the sort of the, the ritual ceremonial structure of what is happening remains connected to this. The form itself, or you can call it the design, still it's still an Amazonian uh, design. So the work that I do is around ceremonial plant work. And this is what I mean by ceremonial plant work. It is a, it's, it is, it is a, a person who uh, um, is responsible, who gorges the dose, who gathers a group under them, who has more experience than the rest, or ideally a lot more experience than the rest, and who sort of creates or is the responsibility to sort of modulate the experience. There's, uh, one could say there's another sort of subgroup below which are, you know, not guides, but sitters. Uh, these are the people that sit, that accompany, but they're not guiding because either they're not creating music or they're not modulating the experience, they're not in some way or another. So it, very quickly, you, you begin to get sort of subdivisions and sub-sub-sub-subdivisions. I try to, for my work, be one step above uh, and do things that will be... Uh, that will be um, that will be relevant to everyone within this sort of loose uh, definition, which is ceremonial plant work, you know, for facilitators of ceremonial plant work, and uh, outside of traditional contexts. That's the other important thing. What is, what is outside of traditional context? Traditional context is the community use that happens in, in the case of ayahuasca uh, uh, in Amazonian traditional cultures. It not only includes indigenous groups, but also includes the ayahuasca churches in Brazil, which are quite large. And there's their bona fide traditions themselves. Now, that aspect, you know, what happens in what is what you would call roughly traditional ayahuasca use, both indigenous and, 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 and religious, uh, my work, our work, do, do, doesn't touch. They have a lot of experience. They have their own context. They have their own, you know. They they, they have their, they have their knowledge. You know, it's not it's not my place to be, you know, teaching or <laughs> anything to those people. The 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 work that we do is what happens when that gets taken out. When that gets taken out, what happens is that the context changes. So, for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, in traditional curanderismo, for example, which is a sort of folk healing at the Amazon level, you know, there's, there's sort of these, you know, folk healers, indigenous uh, or, and indigenous healers. Uh, people who have an ailment, they will come to the uh, curandero's house and they will drink ayahuasca. And sometimes they will stay and actually live at the curandero's house for until they get better for weeks, even months. You know, you can see this. So... Um, and then the rest of the people that come, they're usually known or they're well known or they're within, you know, sort of, you know, uh, 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 close by communities. So it happens at a community level. So at a community level, things like screening and integration happen implicitly. That is, if someone is having problems integrating the experience, the community is going to know and the, and the curandero is going to know. If someone comes with certain preconditions, you know, usually the community knows and the curandero is going to know. So there's no sort of set protocols around these because they're not necessary. This happens implicitly. However, our context is very different. Even, even when the ritual itself might be completely traditional, it might be a traditional healer, because now you have a group of perfect strangers 
whom I don't know each other at all, and they might come from very far away, and they get together for two, four, six, eight, twelve days, and they're going to, you know, drink ayahuasca, and then they're each going to go back to their houses, their places, their, where they live, and they might also lose, lose touch with each other, and this might happen the day after a ceremony. So you don't have this sort of implicit screening or implicit integration. Now it needs to be explicit. It needs to be protocolized. Because it will not just happen by itself where the community will give feedback to you that should say, that person over there, I saw him the other day by the river and he, was, he seems to be having problems. So that means that for outside of the traditional uh, uh, context, additional layers of safety are necessary that are not necessarily uh, 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 the same in traditional context, precisely because we are in sort of for one thing, because there's no community usually in in the way in the way that we do the work, or not the same level of community contact. That's just sort of an example. And again, I wish I had shorter answers for all of these questions. I need to, I need to, <laughs> I need to keep working. <laughs> I need to, I need to improve my, uh, I need to improve my. Uh, my delivery. I feel I talk too much, but it's but it, they are these these things are these things are you know sort of there there is a certain complexity to these things. It's not it's not it's not it is simple enough, but it requires sort of a level of of, of um, you know of discourse. I don't know. Yeah, I mean I mean kind of moving to the topic of safety. It's very interesting because you. <clears throat> You, you mentioned specific plants like uh, that ICH is working with, um, iboga, ayahuasca, coca. And um, it's interesting because you were talking about plants like uh, coca and tobacco and and how even in a more Western context, when, when these plants were kind of quote-unquote discovered by the West, uh, they, they were seen as having a tremendous amount of, of not only medicinal value, but, but in a certain sense, a spiritual value as well. Um, I think it was Bach who even wrote a, a, an opus to tobacco, and, and coca was, uh, w was used in, in many different uh, formulas that people would take. I mean, I mean even famously in Coca-Cola. I think a mm. lot of people have forgotten that that that's one of the main ingredients, and it served a, a medicinal property. Um, I find it very interesting because, like you said, uh, I, ayahuasca has kind of uh, emerged at a unique point in time. Uh, but even a plant like tobacco, often when it's spoken of today, there's a real demonization of it. And it's, it's a very fascinating contrast, I find, between a plant like marijuana, which is often spoken of as being kind of this panacea, this cure-all, and it's it's pure medicine, and and there's no downside to it whatsoever. Uh, and and you look at that versus a plant like tobacco, whereas today there's very little spoken of the medicinal use. It's it just it's very much demonized, and you can't smoke in in most places now. And uh, you know it's interesting. I think even if you were to to kind of take like a uh, a person from New York City or California, uh, I mean, I, I heard someone say this the other day, like if you were to take a, a mother from one of those cities, or, you know, I'm sure many places in Europe, and, and you said, would you prefer your kids uh, working with marijuana or tobacco? Almost all of them would choose marijuana, which is, mm. you know, it's a huge shift in the last 20, 30, 50 years. But I, I think it brings up this interesting point that, 
much like you're saying, is we begin to lose a lot of this complexity. We we look at things in terms of all good or all bad or or, or black and white. Um, and and I think even like with marijuana, many people are beginning to see now because within the last ten or twenty years, there was this real push that that there is no downside of marijuana, that that it's purely medicinal, that it's good for everyone. And and I think people are seeing now that there there are potential downsides. And and just as you said, that that certainly doesn't mean any of these should be illegal because when you look at them vis-a-vis something like cars, I mean, the, the rate of injur- injury is, is minuscule. It's it's truly minuscule. But to also say that there's no downside is, is also disingenuous, um, which kind of comes back to that area of safety, which is, as you said, uh, when things are in the dark, that's often when things tend to go awry. And, and when things are brought to light, we have the ability to actually uh, find that wisdom, like what, what is the benefit? What are the downsides? How do we mitigate those things? So with safety being such a, you know, a, a, an integral part of this course that, that, that you all have come out with, what, what do you find? <clears throat> you mentioned some of these ideas of like best practices or better practices. Mm-hmm. Um, what, are, what are some of the issues that you see safety-wise that, that you think are important to address? Um, because again, I think that is important, and um, you know, also someone mentioned to to me the other day that, that that they didn't like the word safety being used because it kind of implied that somehow these medicines were unsafe. Um, but I don't think that's a that's a wise way of looking at it. I, I think by by acknowledging that that like everything in life, there, there's risk associated with everything, um, and to be really honest with that risk. And, and as you said, with, with many of these plant medicines, the risk is is very small, especially when you consider uh, contrasting it to other medicines, other pharmaceuticals. They're, they they tend to be much more safe. But but to acknowledge the the, the safety and, and the risk is really important. So. That's also kind of a maybe a long question, but but what are some of the the safety things that you think are are important that that that, that are acknowledged and that people think about? Yeah, I, I will start with saying, yeah, you know, thank you for you know picking up on the better practices. You know, we changed our language. You know, we, when we started talking about this, we were talking about best practices instead of better practices, um, and then we realized that best practices give give a very misleading. Um, um, uh, impression that they that there can be such thing as best practices uh, around ceremonial plant work that one can learn in a course and that if you apply this you're already doing the best possible job because you're do, you're doing best practices. You know this is more this idea of best practices is more useful for much simpler activities than you know than I think the complexity of handling these experiences. And that's why we said better practices. So it's not best; it's just better uh, than 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 what it is. And then another aspect of this that is very important is what this course does not teach. You know, and what it doesn't teach is anything having to do with sort of ceremonial, ritual, spiritual, and energetic aspects of these plants. Now, these aspects are enormously important, especially in the traditions. They're basically almost all of it. You know, so we—it was a very conscious decision, you know, um, to stay away from this. We stay away from this because a, you know, we don't have the authority to talk, to, to talk about this stuff. We're, we're not experts in ceremonial, ritual, or spiritual aspects of this. We absolutely acknowledge how important they are, but we cannot, 
it is not our place to be to, to, to teach this stuff. And the other is that even if we were, even if I was some sort of authority on this, I don't believe that this is the type of stuff that can be learned online on a course with videos and Zoom calls. Because this is like learning, I don't know, to do surgery or to drive a car online. You know, you might learn a lot of theory, but, you know, you're going to face a real car sooner or later and, you know, it's not going to, it might not be nice. This is not, some, some things you simply cannot, you cannot learn to ride a bicycle online. Some things are experiential and that's all there is. But also, so taking all, all of this huge part out of, of it out, you know, what sort of safety is left? You know, because that's really, you know, very important aspect is, you know, which goes, you know, spiritual, ritual, you know, energetic, call it what you will, safety. So we, we've taken that out, you know, what is left? Well, you know, some of the things that are left, for example, that is very important is a screening. Screening is, okay, how do you, like I said, ayahuasca is not for everybody. I mean, I think I can be, you know, this is, I this can be sort of, you can frame this as a true truism. It's not for everybody for many reasons, uh, but, you know, some people are just not, you know, they should they should not have ayahuasca, either because, you know, they're sort of, they're because because they, 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 the body, their bodies couldn't take it, because they're taking, you know, certain medications that are counter-interactive, you know, or because, you know, sort of their, their psychological, their mental health situation doesn't recommend it, you know, doesn't recommend it in the sense that their sort of mental health situation would make work for them to take ayahuasca perhaps very difficult for them and also perhaps very difficult to the, for the person giving them the ayahuasca. So this has to do with not whether, you know, people with depression can drink ayahuasca or people with PTSD can drink ayahuasca, but whether each individual facilitator, the facilitator, the person who is giving the ayahuasca to that person can actually manage fully accompany this person who is in this situation on that experience. You know, I think there's very often an, another mistake that gets made there. You know, I can give an example, you know, Stalin Slav Grof, who started, you know, holotropic breath work. You know, he was running a mental health hospital uh, in Prague, I believe it is, in the 50s. And he did a lot of experiments with LSD and gave LSD to all sorts of people that theoretically is not maybe a good idea, you know, psychotic people, people with schizophrenia, you know, all sorts of things. But Stanislav Grof had a mental health hospital, you know, he had 24-hour staff, he had like specialized nurses, you know, he could keep watching people, he had, you know, padded rooms, you know, he had, I mean, with that infrastructure, many things are possible that are not possible in a sort of like outpatient program. And similarly, you know, when it comes to what, you know, sort of ayahuasca and screening, the question is not whether it's okay to do this. The question is, can this facilitator, this concrete facilitator in these concrete circumstances with this concrete person, you know, really fully be present uh, and capable of accompanying, you know, what might happen if this person drinks ayahuasca. And then from there is where the decision gets made. So, you know... Um, so yeah, one, one, one important part that goes a long way to increasing the safety in terms of getting people, uh, um, uh, um, less people, people not having accidents and people getting hurt has to do with screening. Basically, there's a group of people, you know, that probably should not drink ayahuasca. And this group might be larger or smaller depending on the ability in the individual ability of the facilitator. So, again, it's like asking a question, like, you know, can this sailing boat uh, survive a storm? Well, you know, it depends on the ability of the captain, right? You have a really good captain, maybe he can take this boat through a really difficult storm and bring it back, 
you know, you have a novice captain, you always maybe this boat, you know, or any boat for that matter, should not, with this captain, should not go into storm, right? So this decision is not made on the boat. <laughs> this is not about ayahuasca. This is about the facilitator and, and what the, and what the sort of the, 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 the range, the expertise of the facilitator, because very expert facilitators can do things that are very difficult or unachievable by less experienced facilitators, just like, you know, very experienced horse riders or, you know, I don't know, take an example, you know, car drivers or, you know, can do things that, you know, that less experienced people, you know, they can't, you know, it's exactly the same as everything else. You know, you, you, you see people, you know, get on a Lamborghini and if they're a really good driver, they can do amazing stuff with that car. And then you see, you know, less prepared drivers get on a Lamborghini and they tend to have an accident. This is nothing to do with the Lamborghini. <laughs> you know, the Lamborghini is what it is. It's simply a powerful car. Um, so one part has to do with screening, you know. There's other parts that have to do with with the expectations and the information that people, especially people that come to drink for the first time, have about ayahuasca. And this is also very important. You know, many problems also come because people are either not properly informed of what's going to happen or what can happen. And then when it happens, they become very surprised or very scared or very upset. So it has to do, you know, with how one can properly inform people. You know, this is a tricky part for facilitators because, you know, what you have to explain about ayahuasca to a novice person is actually can be quite long and deep. And you have to do this every time a new person comes and it's always the same thing. So it's kind of boring. You know, this is a boring part of, 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 of the work of being a facilitator. It's very important for the novice and it's kind of boring for the facilitator. So in this course, we give ways and documents that sort of help <laughs> make sure that the person who comes for the first time is properly informed, you know, in a way that will sort of not make the facilitator have to repeat everything at the same time. So another part of it has to do with sort of how the expectations are managed so that also the person either, you know, the participant doesn't expect too much to happen because very often people think that they're going to drink ayahuasca and they're going to be healed or something or that they're going to be like five years of psychotherapy in just one night. I mean, people go online, they do their own research. You know, most of the sort of narrative around ayahuasca comes around the most outrageous experiences as it's normal or the most intense you know, and, but many oftentimes people drink ayahuasca for the first time and nothing happens or not much happens, you know, and how this is managed and handled. Um, and then, you know, part of it uh, has to do with how the safety is increased during the night and, you know, and what type of protocols are necessary and, uh, and, and what do you do if, you know, how do you avoid certain harms for happening? What happens with fires, what happens when people who lock themselves in the bathroom and then they can't get out? What happens? I mean, these are very, in a way, a lot of the, you know, sort of safety around this is not that dissimilar from safety that you would need around any gathering of people. You know, people can have heart attack in, the, in an ayahuasca ceremony, not because this ayahuasca provokes it, but because people have heart attacks all the time. They have heart attacks in bars, going up the stairs, riding a bicycle, you know, right? But you have to be prepared, you know, if you are uh, uh, hosting this. So, you know, there's a large part of these things that actually are not particular to ayahuasca, but simply particular to gatherings of people. That doesn't mean that whomever is putting these gatherings together should not be prepared. They should absolutely be prepared. You know, they should know about this. They should have protocols. They should have... Um, 
And then there are certain things that are just sort of particular to ayahuasca. You know, what happens when somebody's having, you know, uh, overwhelming effects? You know, what happens when the effects is too much? What happens when it goes into the next level, which is like not only they're too much, but they're sort of lasting too long, you know? And then what happens when there's even a further level there, which is very, very rare, but is very serious, which is, you know, sort of, you know, full-on disassociative sort of experiences, you know, and psychosis, you know, and what type of work is needed there and support and help the person. But most importantly, how do you avoid that whole situation by doing proper screening at the beginning? Um, and then there is a whole other aspect that has to do with, okay, what happens afterwards, you know, and how do people sometimes interpret or misinterpret what ayahuasca told them, you know, or the nature of the experience, what happened to them, what it meant, the memories that they had or that they recovered, you know, and how to help people, how to help these, all of this material, you know, psychologists would say, that emerges out of the experience, how one can accompany and help people to make the best out of that, you know, as opposed to, you know, so that it, 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 the outcome is positive as opposed to, to negative. And this is very roughly sort of the, many of the risks, and this is just for the participants. There's a whole other part that has to do with the risks that are there for the facilitators themselves and the harms that can come to the facilitators themselves from working with these plants and from the nature of the relationship that they establish with their participants. You, you, you mentioned a, a really good point, which uh, I think speaks to also the complexity of a lot of these things. And um, I, I feel like a lot in society, especially in Western society, I think we very much uh, built a lot of our infrastructure on this idea of meritocracy. And, and we seem to be moving away from that. And... Uh, so oftentimes we'll have these general statements, um, you, like, like an example I think of is, is I practice martial arts, I practice uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and it, it, it kind of goes to this point you were saying, which is, uh, you know, these things are very individual, much like this, uh, this, this captain of a boat. Uh, if you take two people and, and you put them in martial arts, uh, you're not going to get the same results. I mean, maybe one guy has been sitting on his couch for 50 years and eating potato chips and watching TV, and, and, and one guy has been exercising and eating well and meditating, and uh, you're going to have two very different results, even if you put them in the same situation. And mm. and I think that's something that, that's really important to to recognize, but because also, as you were saying, we're, we're, we're moving to these ideas of, of kind of online schools and, and certification. And, and while that's very valuable, it, it, it's also in a way like ignoring the individual, which is uh, very important also to this idea you were speaking about of screening. Um, you know, as you said, like, like sometimes it's said that ayahuasca is for everyone, but not everyone is for ayahuasca. And, and, you know, people may not agree with that, but I think that the idea or the premise is that these plants have potentiality, but, but not everyone is in a place to work with the, the, the plant. And, and, and that plant might not even be good for that person for, as you said, for various reasons. Um, but to, to really acknowledge the individual and, and again, much like I think it was very well said that the, the captain of a ship, the other side of that is 
th- then we can experience this thing, which which is very common too, which is this ego inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, often in this work, it's referred to as like a Jesus complex. Well, I'm the chosen one, and and I don't need any qualifications because no one understands my innate powers, and I'm able to do all of these things. Um, so it's uh, as you said, a, a lot of these things are are, are very complex and. Um, you know, often because I, I facilitated for many years and uh, I think one of the really valuable things that you're pointing to, and, and I used to say this, was that, you know, I, I, again, it's, it's hard to give a percentage, but, but I would say like 90% of my problems were actually solved by how I set things up, the words that I use, the, as you said, the expectations, the information that was given agreements that I would make where, where I would get verbal agreements from people of, of, do you, do you agree to this? Mm -hmm. Uh, and and then there's, there's a, there's a mutual understanding there, there, there's a mutual pact that's made. And, and, and then the, the, you know, the, the qualities of, 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 of yourself, of the people you're working with, all of the work that went in before that, that the center, that the screening, you know, there's, as you said, there's, there's so many things, um, I think like you, I can tend to, to maybe elaborate a lot on things, but I guess this question is getting to this idea of standardization and, and, and maybe some of the pros and cons that come with that um, versus like a very centralized model um, because as you said, a, a lot of this work is going out into the Western world. And, and, and in the West, we do tend to be, I think from my perspective, very good at uh, reducing things, refining things, expanding upon things. Um, but, and also with that, we tend to have often these like centralized models, like certifications, um, standards, uh, but then there's also this argument for more decentralized models of, you know, much like you were also acknowledging that, that, that indigenous people, for example, have maybe a particular way of working, that, that various different indigenous people have their own ways of working. So uh, I guess the question is, is how do you, how do you and, and ICRs find that balance between uh, having something that's taught that, that, that as you said, because I, I think there are very universal principles and, and mm. things that apply almost across the board. Um, and then there are things that could be debatable. Um, mm. And maybe certain groups of people can do something very well. Other people can maybe not do it as well. Um, so, so where is that, that kind of balance or finding that, that line of, of, of being able to teach things that, that you feel are, are kind of universally applicable? And then where do you see that there's room to where some of those things may may or may not apply in, in other situations? Yes. Yeah, this has been a big sort of part of our own sort of internal and also sort of collective and, and, and community debates. Um, uh, there is enormous um, variety and sort of uh, diversity in the sort of the practices around ayahuasca, even in the traditional world. So, you know, even in the Amazon, within the Amazon, there's enormous diversity. And then, you know, also outside. And, you know, again, this sort of problem of, you know, the, the dangers of standardization, as standardization tends to be like a steamroller, it sort of flattens everything, you know, and that's what it means, standardization, you know, and 
uh, and how do you, how can you, how can these things be created? So, you know, one sort of, there's a couple of concepts that are very important to our work. One is the difference between sort of individual freedom and, um, and sort of collective responsibility. So we, you know, we come from, we are firm believers in both. That is, you know, this is, and I believe this is nice, and I think everybody in ISIS would agree with me. You know, people should be free to do whatever they want to do with themselves, with their boat. You know, if you want to take your boat to storm, it's your boat, it's your boat, and you can take it. It should be absolutely your right to do it. And you might get hurt, you might not get hurt, I don't know. I mean, who am I to tell you how to sell your boat? You know, I can't. You know, so everybody should be free to do what, what they want to do individually with themselves, absolutely. However, when there's other people involved, then I'm sorry, but you're not as free. So if you are walking on the sidewalk and it's just you, you can walk, you can crawl, you can jump, you can, you know, do cartwheels. If you're driving a bus and there's 14 other people in the back, then suddenly you're not as free as you would if you were walking by the street by yourself. And it's unfortunate, but it's like this. It's not the same. It's not the same what you do with your boat, when it's just you and your boat, than when there's four people in your boat for other people. Then you are not as free, unfortunately. Now you're responsible for those four people. And if they get hurt and they didn't choose, or they didn't know that you're going to decide to go into this storm, right? There's a responsibility there that is here. So, the, so this is also, this is also very important, this distinction. You know, people say, oh, you're sort of, some people say, well, this is my freedom. I should be able to work however I want. Yes, you should. You know, but your freedom ends where other people's freedom begins. And this is, you know, absolutely key as well, especially, and also other people's well-being. So, you know, sometimes I joke that this sort of, you know, when people have also come to me, you know, with this sort of argument that, you know, that the world safety already comes and it brings all of these sort of things about, you know, safety first and, you know, this sort of standardization and, and the growth of bodies of political pressure that, you know, make life, you know, so full of rules and all of these, which, you know, I totally understand, you know. Um, and I, you know, was having recently sort of a discussion about this and, and, and I said that, you know, you know, maybe, maybe I should have called this course, you know, how to avoid harming people who have put yourselves, who have put themselves under your care. You know, it wouldn't be so sexy. You know, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't, you know, maybe it wouldn't sell so well. Uh, uh, and that's why we call it, you know, increasing the safety of ayahuasca ceremonies. Right. But this is what we're talking about. We're talking about how to avoid harming people who have put themselves under the care of these facilitators. That's a, that's a, that, that is undeniable that this has happened. If you put yourself in a position where you're going to facilitate, you're going to serve this to other people, and you're going to take some interchange of money, energy, whatever, and they are putting themselves in your hands, then you're in a situation that is slightly different from the freedom that you would have as an individual, free, sovereign individual, to do whatever you want with, your, with yourself and with your life, you know. Um, so this is, so th this, these are, these are the sort of two starting points around this. One is that, yeah, there is less freedom involved when the, the minute other people step in. So, you know, a, a bachelor is more free than a family man. Life is like this. 
you know, I wish, <laughs> I wish, I wish, you know, it wasn't. I like freedom myself, right? But I understand that life is like this. Life is like this. You know, when there's other people involved, there's more responsibility and less freedom. Full stop. And then the other thing is that instead of talking about best practices or even better practices or standardized models, what we do is we focus on what we, what we believe can be done, which is what we call minimum safety standards. Minimum safety standards. So the standards that we're talking about is the minimum that we can all agree on, not the best practices that we are going to argue about endlessly and that everybody would have to sort of follow their own. This is, in a sense, you know, a lot of the facilitating work, especially close to the shamanic thing, it's closer in a way to sort of like a craftsmanship or, or an artistry or with martial arts. It's sort of people sort of developed an individual personal style, you know. Um, and this part is not standardizable. You know, you cannot make a homogeneous anything out of this. However, there are certain things much, much below. You know, so very often in, in the sort of arguments, uh, you know, sort of debates that I've been among facilitators, I've been among many, you know, sometimes this issue comes, you might be familiar with, about women in their moon time and, you know, whether it's okay for women in their moon time to drink ayahuasca or not. And then this quickly turns or, 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 or devolves into, you know, a very heated discussion, uh, which I always... You know, when I am facilitating those meetings, I always stop on its tracks, you know, and I say, look, we are never going to agree on this. There will never be an agreement of this. I will be, however, very happy if we get out of this meeting with all of us agreeing that if someone gives ayahuasca to somebody else, then they're not allowed to leave the room and go to sleep, you know, until that somebody else is fully out of their experience. That's what I mean about minimum safety standards. Right. That is the piece that we can all agree with. And it shouldn't be necessary. But actually it is. We need, <laughs> we need to agree because the diversity, it's so large that even certain things that are just sort of, I would say, common sense, minimum safety standards are not being followed by some people. And that's the part, that's where the work happens. Also, you know, quite honestly, if this ever becomes a conversation with the administration or with the authorities, most of the safety standards that are in the minimum, it's enough for what the authorities care about. The authorities care about, is there a fire exit? Is there a fire hydrant? Is there a bathroom? You know, these, these are the sort of thing. Where is the ayahuasca being kept? And is it being kept under lock? I mean, these are the type of safety sort of features that our society implements for these sorts of things. You know, they're not about who's your teacher and what their lineage is, you know, and where, and where they came from. Fortunately, thank God, right? Our administrations are never going to go into that stuff. But they will demand a certain level of sort of minimum, a certain floor of safety that is, you know, similar, equal or a little bit superior to what happens in sort of similar sort of gatherings of people. Uh, and that has to be that that has to be that has to be reached. So that's the sort of place that we work from. So this is also, you know, keeping the energetic, the spiritual. We're talking about, you know, what are the minimum? What are the minimums? You know, because Quite honestly, if, if most everybody or if everybody stuck to these minimums, you know, a huge uh, 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 percentage of some of, of the problems or the difficulties that we're having would not happen. You know, we're not, we're not, you know, many, many, many of the, not all, you know, but many of the things that happen come from, you know, actually could, you know, they, they have simple, they have simple solutions. Um, 
So that's the that's that's, that's sort of that's that's sort of where where we you know the the, the place again the place for where for, from where we do it. So you know I, I will give you an example because you talk about agreements. You know we also we also came to this. You know we try to again support every step of the process and you know and there was a, a big piece that had to do with consent and uh, informed consent. And with the sort of document that, you know, facilitators could give to their participants to sign some sort of informed consent. So, you know, because we, you know, ICERS for a foundation, we can do these sort of things. We contacted lawyers and had them look at, you know, sort of informed consents from many different aspects of life, from medical research, from danger sports, and, you know, from all these other places where the people will do, put themselves in, in, do something that could endanger them. Their, their well-being potentially, not not as a desire, but as a sort of an accident. And what type of release forms are signed, and what does that mean? So, and they put together and they brought back to us this very very thorough release form, uh, legally validated, but where in Spain, so for Spain it's le- legally valid. But that it was, you know, one of these sort of terrible legal documents when you read it, you know, it was really not in the spirit of the plans. It was sort of like, I acknowledge that all of this, basically you have to list every bad thing that can happen and the person has to acknowledge that they know that this could happen and then sign it off, which of course is just, you know, talk about expectations. You know, you're making this, you know, you know, this going on the other direction. It's like if you tell people absolutely every dangerous thing that happened to them with the drink ayahuasca, <laughs> You know, what type of attitude are they going to walk into the experience? You know, so, you know, so, you know, we work a little bit with the legal part. You know, we, we make sure that not only the negative effects were listed, but also the positive sort of objectives. You know, the people were looking for these sort of positive things and these are also listed and then all the negative as well. But we came up, we, we realized that, you know, we thought perhaps we could just have a different sort of agreement, a pact, a, a different document that was not legally valid, but was sort of, sort of psychologically and relationally important. A sort of pact of honor that could be taken between, between the facilitator and the participant. And that would say, look, as a facilitator, these are my compromises, you know, and as a participant, you know, they, these are my compromises. And then, you know, they would sort of read it and I don't know how this pledge would work. They could shake on it or they could sign it or they could, but that they would, this, this, this document would have no legal validity, but it would have tremendous personal and relational validity. So basically the, 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 the facilitator would, would, would commit, would pledge to, you know, properly inform of everything, to be there to answer all of the questions, you know, to be there for the person when the person needed it during the ceremony and also afterwards. And also not to take any advantage, you know, that is, you know, economical, you know, psychological, sexual, you know, romantic, etc., and to respect the boundaries of the relationship between participants and, 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 uh, and, uh, and facilitators. And then for the facilitator would, pledge that a they were there because they wanted to that nobody had sort of pushed them into this because it's very very important you know the main counterindication of ayahuasca is not to want to drink ayahuasca or to be afraid of drinking ayahuasca you know this is you really want to it's very very important that you want you know sometimes you know say ayahuasca is like a kiss you know if you if you want it it can be the most wonderful intimate beautiful thing in the world if you don't want the kiss it is intrusive disgusting you know blah, right the kiss is the same but this is how important this sort of you know, aspect of consent is it it is it all revolves around this 
right? So, so the person was there because they want to. That the person has been truthful in their answers of the medical questionnaire and the previous interview. This is also very important because there's cases of people who should be screened out because they have pre-existing psychological or physical conditions and they know that they would, they're going to be screened out. So there's a temptation to lie during the screening process in order to be given ayahuasca. So it's very important that we have designed a, a, a sort of a way, a method to give the person the chance if they have withheld that information to actually come back and be truthful of it in different points of the process. So they, they, they commit to having said the truth, you know, and uh, I'm saying this out of memory, the, the, um, and then they commit to have to follow, you know, the sort of, you know, previous preparation, whatever is it that they have been given. You know, some people give different food restrictions and different, you know, they commit to having followed this, you know. And then during the ceremony, they commit not to leave the space of the ceremony until they have asked for permission and received the permission. And this is because sometimes people in the middle of the ceremony decide that they want to go home. And this turns into, it can turn into quite ugly argument, that, like you're keeping me here under my you know, against my will. And you don't want to end up in that discussion. You want to be in, we're not keeping you here under your will. We made, you made a pledge, remember before, that you were going to stay until the ceremony was over and I'm asking you to, to fulfill your promise. And that's the level at which you would want to have that discussion. Not at the level of can, can you go, can you not go, you know, or, or, or where can you go? So they wouldn't leave, you know. They commit that if they need help, they will let the facilitator know. That's not the same as accepting the help of the facilitator. But the, faci the facilitator should know that they're having difficulties, which is not the same as... Uh, and then, you know, there's a other aspect that has to do with the after and not taking, you know, sort of life-changing decisions shortly after the ceremony and, and unless a series of, of, of conditions are met. So just by both sides following their sort of commitments on both sides of the pledge, you can already do away with, you know, a huge chunk, you know, of the problems, you know, or, or the safety risks or the harms that can sometimes, or rarely, again, rarely, but sometimes come from these ceremonies. Um, and in a way, this demands something that has to do, that is, it's a human agreement. It's good to have legal documents. It's good to have doctors involved. It's good to have, you know, screening protocols. It's good to have, you know, somebody that you can check, you know, there's contract, you know, uh, counterindications with medicines and all of this. You know, it's good to have science and safety, you know. But it's also very important that there's certain, like you said, sort of, sort of, a, 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 there's something in the nature of the relationship and how that gets established, you know. Uh, and this is not something that is easily protocolized, uh, uh, but it's something that, you know, it's absolutely key in terms of the results or the outcomes of these things. So, so in, 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 in a way, you know, and, and this is, I would like to see more of these in the sort of the medicalization of psychedelics. I think I think this is a big sort of missing sort of blind spot uh, of people working to medicalize psychedelics is that this sort of understanding of this sort of I don't know what to call it personal relational 
agreements that are happening, you know, whether you say it or not, this is happening, right? People are coming, people are putting themselves under the care of the facilitator. People are taking certain, the facilitators taking certain roles, the participants are taking certain roles. Whether this is expressed or not, this is happening. Now, how this is best done, right? How this is managed, you know, with sort of with, with kindness, with humanity, with wisdom, right? It's sort of the big sort of blind spot of of uh, of sort of I think the current uh, attempt to medicalize, which is definitely to standardize, you know, uh, uh, medical care with psychedelics. Yeah, yeah, a lot of really good points there. Um, yeah, I, I would agree. I, I mean, I, I think there are what we could say are, are, are certain universal standards that, 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 that do apply across the board. And, you know, much like the, the center where I worked, there was all of these, these things you're talking about, intake forms, maybe even screening calls with people, a lot of information, pre, pre-diet restrictions, and, and consent forms and, and agreement forms. And, and I think those things are all really important. And, and as we were both talking about, I think there's also something very, very important about that human interaction, because like you said, uh, you know, there was very few rules that, that I would give apart from the consent form, but, but they were rules that were very important for me for how I was managing that ceremony and, and, and rules that would make that, that I knew would make my life easier and in turn make a safe environment for the guests. And, and, and I think there's also, there's a real difference when that was communicated by words, uh, looking into people's eyes, uh, explaining it versus on a consent form. And much like you said, one of the really common ones, uh, the, the ceremonies where, where I was working were done in, in a maloka, but you could call it a ceremony space. And, and we were two facilitators and, and often 23 guests and, and maybe four, four healers, four uh, shamans, curanderos. And, uh, for example, a, a rule saying you can't leave the maloka, if that's in a, a written agreement, <laughs> and then someone may sign that, but then in, in, in the heat of the ceremony, in, in the depths of their, their mediación, the effect, there's all sorts of reasons why someone mm. isn't going to give a shit that they sign their, their name on that dotted line. Uh, the jungle is calling to them. They need to commune with the jaguar. The, the energy is so dark in the maloka. They have mm. to escape. They're going to die. They're, they're suffocating. Uh, so, th so that then I found that that written agreement became meaningless. And, and then, as you said, it, it, it becomes a it becomes a discussion with someone, and and in that ceremony space, that's not a space for a discussion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there, there's no room for intellect or rationalization. Mm -hmm. You also you're working with a lot of other people, so you, even just time wise, you don't have that time. And and that's why I was saying there. I found again, it's kind of a random number, but but ninety percent of my work was cut out by by genuinely explaining, and I think that's a real key is is that explanation, telling someone why why is it that uh, during the ceremony we can't have people leaving the maloka, uh, explaining the effects that come up that way. Also, when people 
experience that effect. It's not something novel. They can say, oh, yeah, like Jason told me, this is one of the things that I might be experiencing, and now I'm experiencing it. Uh, There's that understanding, that explanation of just in simple safety protocols, like there's 23 of you, if you're all running into the jungle, maybe for legitimate reasons, you you do feel like you want to commune with the jaguar or the fish in, in, in the river are calling you to come and swim with them. We can't assure your safety. And, and, and our most important function is, is to ensure your safety. And so in, in order to do that, we have to have you stay in the maloka. And, and I think when people are explained that, then it's not just, it's not a written line. It's like, oh, okay, like this makes yeah. sense to me. And this guy actually has my best interest at heart. And this huge thing of, of a verbal agreement, there's a real power to, to the word, which I think maybe we've forgotten about in, in a lot of the societies we talked about. Even you were mentioning cocoa, which I have in my mouth right now. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't get me banned from YouTube, but um, but there is this sense of this real power of a, of a word and tobacco. There, there's these qualities of, of a commitment to pact, and and I think that's something that's really important. That 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 when someone does give their word from a genuine place of like, yes, I agree to that, then in the heat of that ceremony, when these things come up, it's much much easier to deal with. It's just simply like a gentle reminder, like, hey, you made this agreement. Uh, and, and you remember all of the reasons. And, and so now we have to be held accountable for that, for, for your own well-being. And I just find that, that, that you know, that that's such a, a much easier to, uh, place to work from. Um, yeah, I, I guess I one other question. That, that, question. You go ahead. Um, if you want to make the question and then I will, I will answer both. But if just what you said reminded me of a couple of stories, but I, I got them. Go ahead. No, no, go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, there's um, you know, one one was um, one was um, you know, first or second time I drank ayahuasca. It was twenty years ago, and I was in the jungle. I was in Manaus, and uh, and I stepped outside of the Maloka, and you know, you see the sort of the side of the trees and the, the profile of the trees and the moon and just the sounds of the jungle, and, and I had this sort of feeling that I wanted to be, you know, be closer to this wonderful nature, and I just sort of. And down, and I, 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 I put my hand on the ground just to feel the ground, and immediately got bitten by go figure what <laughs> insect that was crawling that was crawling at night in the in, in, in the jungle as it happens. I mean, it was it was like almost immediate, you know, um, and in terms of you know of of, of, of what is out there, and um, and and the other has to do with you know. It's terrible, you know. People, people, you know. Once I was with a friend who, you know, works um, with ayahuasca, and this and this this girl, this woman came and she wanted to drink. She said, "I, I would like to drink, but I I can't because I'm taking antidepressants. They're very strong, and I can't stop them because when I stop, I my my my, uh, my uh, symptoms get much worse. I already tried." Um, so you know, I explained to her that it was not possible because there were sort of counter and counter certain. You know, sort of uh, 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 interactions could happen that were that were not, not not positive. And she said, "Yes, no, I understand that something bad could happen, but it's okay. I'm totally willing to assume the risk." She said, and I had to explain to her that it's okay. Of course, she would she could assume the risk for herself, right? This is like where you take your boat to the to the to the to the storm, you know, and you might. 
but the thing is, if she was going to have developed problems in the middle of the ceremony, you know, who was going to take care of her? Who was going to take her to the hospital? Who was going to explain to the doctors that she drank ayahuasca and that now she needed help? You know, who was going to take care of the rest of the participants uh, while that other person was accompanying her to the hospital? You know, so this was not about the risks that she assumed, which everybody understands that she was willing to assume but about how this was going to affect everybody else. And if she was willing to uh, assume that, because that's what she needs to assume, right? So this is, this is, you know, so now one of the suggestions that we have for that is that, you know, one has to explain to people in terms of lying in the questionnaire, it's not about the dangers to themselves, which, you know, you also have to explain, but usually people are willing to assume those dangers, but about how it's going to affect everybody else. And that's usually what makes people stop and think. Not so much when it comes to them, right? So this is, this is, this is, um, this is that aspect of how this is done that is necessary. So if you were you to jan run away in the jungle, you know, who's going to look for you? Who's going to make sure that nothing happens to you? Because this and this and this could be out there because blah, 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 for all of these reasons, you know, it's sometimes I think it's a very sort of, you know, with my daughters, uh, I, I, I put this in terms of the difference between the rules and the teachings. So the the, 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 the the rules are, you know, can't you can't walk with your shoes in the in the living room. You have to take your shoes off if, before you enter the house, for example, right? Or before you enter the maloka. This is the rule. The teaching is we like to keep the maloka clean. And many people are passing by, you know. And that's why we take our shoes off at the entrance. Right? There's a big difference, you know, also when you stop people and you say, hey, hey, you know, sorry, no shoes in the maloka, you know, and that usually creates a certain sort of tightness and also resistance in people, you know, and even a desire, well, fuck you, right, telling me what to do and blah, 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 you know, it's a very different thing from calling people by their name, you know, first of all, because they pay attention when you call them by their name, you know, and then saying, listen, we like to keep the maloka clean, you know, that's why we take our shoes off at the door. And then people say, of course, of course, sorry, sorry. And they do it, right? This, there's a certain sort of, um, again, you know, I don't know what to call it, um, 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 there's a tendency in our society, no, not in our societies, but in, sort of generally, it's already been, uh, it's been spoken about by certain anthropologists that study uh, religious uh, movements. And they call it the difference between the, 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 the evolution between the charismatic stage and the bureaucratic stage of a spiritual movement. So the, the charismatic stage is at the beginning and is usually built around, you know, a figure, a founder, some sort of figure that has, you know, sort of spiritually more advanced or very a certain charisma. And this person is sort of teaching. And then eventually the system begins to solidify or the person dies. And what is left are the rules. This is the bureaucratic, the bureaucratic aspect, because the rules are much easier to communicate than actually the teachings, you know, that require, you know, no shoes in the maloka. That's easy to say. Everybody can remember. Everybody can learn. But there's no learning there. It's just, it's just, um, um, so again, you know, I think, I think this, they, this, this sort of, this plans, this work sort of demands of people, uh, 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 
you know, the, 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 the bureaucracy, <laughs> the bureaucratic aspect, you know, unavoidable and important as it is, will never be enough. Uh, basically, that's, 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 that's what it comes, that's what it comes down to. You know, it's, it's the difference, it's the difference between, you know, cooking by formula, you know, and cooking by formula, but sort of tasting what you're cooking as you cook. <laughs> right? There is a, there is a, there is a degree, you know, you could, you could, and in many, you know, in many places, you know, in McDonald's and, you know, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't want to pick on any particular place, but in many places where food, food is cooked, the actual person cooking is not directly, it's simply following a, a recipe. Right. Uh, and a formula, but that's very different from actually engaging uh, 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 and, and adjusting. Uh, sort of, a, it's a more organic process that I think is necessary, um, and that is impossible to standardize. It's impossible to put into protocol. You can sort of protocolize, but not really. You know, it's a, it's, it's the, it's the sort of most um, magical aspect of all of this. And, and perhaps the aspect that will be less um, less easy to sort of one day integrate in our societies. I, don't, I mean, but but for me, you know, there it, it is the most sort of valuable or interesting aspect that comes with engaging with these sort of practices and with these medicines. It's precisely this. You know, it's not it's not that you know I've got you know many you know wonderful mind blowing incredible you know, experiences, I can say many wonderful things about, you know, the 20 years that I've been drinking ayahuasca and, and, you know, but I think at the end, you know, what has sort of kept me here is not so much the ayahuasca itself, which, you know, every year I drink less and less often, but, but, but because, yeah, because this is also, I think, part of it, it's sort of natural, you, you don't, you, you need it uh, less and less, or you need less of it anyway, but this other aspects that has to do with how can one make this, you know, what is one taking away from this, and how, how is one sort of um, learning certain sort of lessons that are not lessons from ayahuasca, but they're lessons about sort of humanity and human, uh, just sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it, the mystery, <laughs> human mystery uh, 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 that is relational, that is, that is, you know, part of it is learned, part of it is experience, part of it is, you know, it's that, yeah, it's the same sort of, sort of magic that happens. Also with cooking, there is the formula, there's the receipt, there's the recipe, and then there's this sort of magic, you know, why is my mother's gazpacho better than mine, even though I, I follow exactly the steps? It just is, right? And and because she's made gazpacho many, many more times than I have, and there's something there that I, I cannot, no matter if I copy the exact amounts and exact things, if there's something there that just doesn't, is is not is not uh, you, you you can't standardize. Yeah, some some beautiful points there. Um, it actually kind kind of led me to my next question, and. Um, I think you, you, you really beautifully spoke about it. And it, it's something, kind of going back to this martial arts analogy, it's something I really noticed is many of these traditional martial arts, um, like I'll, I'll use Aikido, for example, because I, I practiced it for a little while. It, 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 the, the guy who started it practiced many, many different martial arts. I mean, he, he was almost like very much a Renaissance man too, not just martial arts, many different things, uh, many other practices as well. And from that, he developed a style. 
And, and, and very much as you said, often when these people die, the only thing that's left are, is the form or, or the rules, as you said. Mm-hmm. And, and people often forget the essence or, or how those things uh, were derived or only understanding things on the level of form, but not necessarily the essence that, that was under them. And I think many martial arts in that way, they, they really suffered. Uh, they, they kind of reached a, a limit and, and there was no, no real advancement. Uh, if you look at any traditional martial art uh, 20 years ago versus 100 years ago, it's basically the same. There's not a lot of difference. And then all of a sudden, these martial arts kind of came to a more Western context, uh, which they had been for a long time, but but especially with jiu-jitsu, which was interesting because it was a Japanese martial art that came to Brazil and, and kind of completely revolutionized because they were looking to apply it to different situations, mainly real fights, uh, and especially focusing on the ground. And, and then through that kind of questioning, uh, martial arts really, I would say in the last 20 years, have changed more in, than they have in the last 2,000 years. I mean, there's been a huge explosion, it, and it's often referred to now as mixed martial arts. And it's really taking all of these ideas from all of these martial arts, like what works, what doesn't work. If it doesn't work, let's let's not practice it. Maybe we come back to it at a later point and we realize, oh, like that's why it wasn't working was because this was missing. But but not just accepting things in, in that level of form. And and now you look at a martial artist today and the gap between a martial artist 20 years ago is extraordinary. I, I mean, it's almost like two different worlds. And I think that's really happened because of the refinement, the questioning, the uh, the advancement, the specialization, and and so it kind of a long winded, but but it it's getting to this uh, question which, which a lot of people have of this idea of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. exactly. um, and you know one of the as I mentioned earlier, I think one of the real benefits of the West, much like that martial arts example, was this refinement, this ability to 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 adapt, to, to, to discover more, to, to build upon. And, and, and that martial arts, uh, I think is a really good example of that. Um, you were also talking about some of these, uh, indigenous groups like, uh, like the, the, the Tubu and the Colombian Amazon, who there's a gentleman I've, I've worked a lot with, and, and they had this beautiful prophecy that, that we're moving into this time of the, the Dido Amazon. They were translated as like the, the children of the new dawn. And, it's the people who can bridge the medicine of the four directions to create a new maloka, to create a new earth. And, and I think there's a lot of power and potency in that. It's, it's recognizing that all of the directions have medicine and that we're actually in this time of how can we bridge those to actually create something new, create something better. Um, and, and I think, you know, even with cultural appropriation, we, we often tend to look at it as very black and white, like either it's nonsense or you can't appropriate anything because otherwise you're stealing. And even within an indigenous context, I mean, most good healers in traditional societies would go to another group, to another culture and appropriate the good things of their culture because they realized in order to grow, in order to evolve, they also needed to learn from the outside and, and to take what was good and, and build upon that. Um, 
And, and so I think, you know, culture throughout the world has always appropriated. There's not a single culture in the history of the world that hasn't appropriated. I mean, culture is an amalgamation of different things that we bring in. And, and so on the one hand, you can argue that. And then on the other hand, there is a reality of, uh, you know, for example, I, I spent some time with the Matzais and, uh, you know, early on people came in and, and for example, took that knowledge of, of the, the, the frog uh, venom medicine, which, which they call akate. Often people refer to it as like kombo or sapo. Uh, but they were never compensated for that. So a lot of people refer to that as like biological piracy. Someone just came in, <laughs> they, they, they were very fortunate to be taught something, and then they just kind of began selling it to the outside world, often making huge profits, and, and, and nothing ever came back. So there is a, there is a legitimate concern, too, of, of like what is being taken, what's being extracted, which also goes, I think, to a very indigenous principle, uh, indigenous people all over the world. But even, uh, you know, if, if you look, well, I guess you can only see a tree back here, but behind there, there's a mountain. So I'm, I'm coming from the, the, the Andes Mountains of Peru. And, and in many of the Quechua traditions, they, they speak of this idea of Aini, of reciprocity. And uh, it's a very fundamental part of, of their worldview, that, that it's something that's very powerful. And 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 I'm often reminded. You mentioned the the kogi or the arawaku. I I, I was working with a guy once, and uh, it was interesting because I found a lot of people were they seemed kind of tired of his response to everything because people kept asking him like, why this? Why this? Why is this happening? Why is why am I this way? And his answer was often something like, uh, uh, "You haven't made a payment." <laughs> which kind of goes to this idea of reciprocity. And he wasn't talking about money. He was talking about this idea of reciprocity, that, that everything has a cost. And, and when we forget about that, we, 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 we create an imbalance. Um, so again, a, a very long-winded question, but, but I think that's something that's, that's very much come to the forefront of, of maybe people's worldview. Uh, about this idea of, of, of what is, as you said, like better practice, what is the idea of reciprocity? What is the idea of, of taking something that, that maybe originated in this indigenous context, but then also building upon it, like, like in this martial art example? And, and so I, I guess for you, and, and I know this is a super complex question, but, but how do you go about navigating like for you and for ICRs, what what feels like a good balance? Because again, both of those those views have have some validity to them. Yeah, again, it, it's an extremely complex question. Um, but I mean, I think also there's a lot of nuances. So you know, one part of it has to do with there's certain things that are freely shared and freely borrowed. You know words and cooking dishes and you know i mean there's many many things that you know that 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 are, we ourselves have in our culture that don't that they're valuable but just sort of reasonably valuable or lowly valuable or you know whatever you know i know wearing hat backwards or you know whatever you know i don't want to you know and and then there's certain things that are more valuable and then there's certain things that are very very valuable and then there's certain things that are sacred or they're considered sacred, and it's not the same, right? This, 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 right? So there's not there's not a one size fits all in terms of what can be shared or freely, you know, whatever the word is, you know, taken. You know, that's that's one one part that I think is very important to make a distinction. You know, it's not the same. Also for us, for us, it's not the same. 
you know, uh, 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 you know, a, a Tim Robbins book or you know, Harold, you know, one of his bestsellers, you know, it's not the same as the Bible, you know, especially for some people, and it cannot be uh, in our culture, you know, this, these things cannot be sort of used or put in the same way. They cannot be, you know, tossed around or burned or sat on or or ripped apart uh, or or anything in the same way, right? So that's that's the first thing that there's levels and that there's certain things that are much much more important and valuable, culturally speaking, for every culture than others. Um, and then, um, and then so, so, so it's never sort of one size fits all, you know. Then there's sort of something else that has to do with, you know, again, sort of an imbalances of, of power, you know, when you, one person has most of the power. Uh, and this also makes a big difference. It makes a big difference because the loss is different, you know. If I am a millionaire and you take and you take you know fifty euros from me, it's not the same that you know if I'm you know completely broke and you take fifty euros from me. So this is also you know it's not about the fifty euros, <laughs> right? Again, this the, 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 the things tend to get flattened into sort of like one size, and that's not that's not the case. And then um, and then there's another important aspect that has to do with not what what is taken uh, as much. Staking, but what that says about the nature of the relationship that took place, you know, and this is also a thing very often because it's very hard. It's very easy to make a rule and say, take, don't take. That's the rule, but that's not that's not that's not what's there. The teaching that stands behind that, the teaching that stands behind that, has to do with the value of this thing, you know, the position where this thing plays, where it's being taken from, and the nature of the relationship that you're establishing with that thing that you took or that you learn afterwards. So how respectful are you with this Bible or whatever it is, right? Are you respectful in a way that the people who gave you the Bible or who originally used the Bible would say, it's okay, you can have the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I'm being very, very sort of, uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, um, sort of direct, you know, perhaps I should use more academic words or more careful words, but I'm trying to, I generally like to, you know, be very, you know, paint things very clearly, you know, and it's also how I tend to think. And then there is exactly this aspect uh, that we spoke about, about the difference between the forms, you know, like you said, or, or, or the rules and the teachings, you know, and I think this is the really important thing that, you know, at least guides my approach to this, uh, because in my work, I take a lot of inspiration from traditional ayahuasca cultures. A lot of inspiration. I look for them constantly for guidance and for better practices in very down-to-earth sort of pragmatic things, you know, not because the spiritual energetic aspects, you know, cultural, mystical aspects are not important, but because sort of from a humble position, I'm not going there. I'm just looking at, but still I'm constantly, you know, referencing the, the, the traditions. So how can one, you know, and I use this word inspiration very, very careful because very carefully because I think that's the key. I think it's the difference between being inspired and taking something that is not yours. And this is something that is not yours rightfully to take. And this is something that is, um, and what is not yours rightfully to take are the sacred forms because it's sacred. And because when you take the form alone, you're being insulting, you know, it's like, you know, you just have to think about any other, you know, uh, 
you know, I always give the example, and let's imagine there's a place in a country in the world where there's no Jewish people, and this person becomes fascinated with Jewish culture, which is, you know, it's a fascinating thing. It's, you know, thousands of years old, it's highly developed, you know, incredibly complex, full of wisdom and knowledge, you know, at all levels, you know, spiritual, practical, you know, relational. This person becomes fascinated, you know, especially with sort of like most orthodox, you know, and the, the, this person goes to uh, Israel, spends, you know, sometimes, some months, some years with, you know, with, with orthodox Jews, which, you know, find this other person's fascination kind of awkward, you know, this is not, you know, this, this, is, this is sort of a very personally thing about I, and as a certain, not just sort of a set of practice and spirituality, but an identity, you know, sort of Jewish identity. You know, this is not something that you can easily join, no matter how fascinated you are by it. It doesn't mean it's impossible, it just, it's, it's, but it's usually not easy. This person spends some time over there, you know, become learning and asking questions and about everything, you know, fascinating researching. Well, it's an honest interest that this person has, you know. And then eventually, after six months or six years, this person goes back to their country, you know, and then, you know, they put on a kippah, you know, they call themselves a rabbi and they open and they open a synagogue. Well, in you know, in this country where they are, you know, they probably would get taken seriously because it's the first synagogue and nobody knows, you know, what a synagogue is or isn't. You know, maybe in Jerusalem where they came from, people would be kind of, you know, they would either, you know, laugh or be offended or, you know, there would, there would be a, a, a range of, there would be a range of reactions. But, you know, most of them would go around like, well, I mean, this person has no clue. They learn a little bit, but I mean, this is just, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not, this, this is like you were born into this and then it takes your whole life. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, you're welcome to, but I mean, you know, the, the main point I'm doing, and again, by bringing this down, is that, you know, you don't want to be that person. Nobody should want to be that person, you know, that goes and, you know, puts on and, and, calls, it, and, calls, this, and calls this a synagogue, right? That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that there's not an incredibly rich thing that happens when people go to other cultures and experiences other ways of engaging with the world, you know, and grows personally enormously through this encounter with other ways of being, you know, because these other ways of being show you so much about the way you are, you know, that was not obvious, you know, it shows you so much about what you don't do, because they do it and you don't, and you learn so much anyway, but that's different, right? This is, this is, this is, this is the most en enriching, one of the most enriching uh, life experiences possible. It comes from traveling too. You know, when you're exposed to other cultures. But that's not, the, it's not the same, right? That the, this is this sort of delicate balance. And then when, when it comes with the, you know, when it comes to the forms, the mistake is to grab the forms. You know, this is, this I think is the biggest mistake. Instead of the much more nuanced uh, uh, teachings that are behind it, because the forms are cultural answers, indiv you know, individual cultural answers to human, so to general human problems. So different cultures would, would react to these sort of situations that are uniquely human in their environment by a cultural response that is very peculiar and particular to them. Underneath of these, if you can look, there's a human issue. That is, and that part is universal. What is not universal is the, is the cultural response that is individual to the culture. And if you 
very often if you grab this, so you grab whatever, the, the feathers, you know, the, the, you know, the, the forms, you know, what is outside, you know, the songs, the this, the that, you know, uh, 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 you're missing the point, right? In many cases, you know, for example, with Icarus, you know, the point is missing is that very often the Icarus are received, you know, after very long periods of dieta. So, of course, there's power in the song, but the power is not in the song or just in the song. The power is in the dietas that the person did and the preparation that made them receive, you know, this particular Icaro that incarnates, you know, their power with their relationship that they established with the plant, you know. And all of this is, 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 is cooked into this, and there's a part of that that no matter how well you sing this song, you will never have for yourself because it's not in the song. The song is the symptom, right? But that's one aspect of it. However, there is the teaching that lays underneath, and this is much more difficult to see. Um, and it can only be explained with examples. So, you know, I will give you an example. I myself have taken a, one of the groups that I've spoken with that is a, a sort of outside of my work and outside of my what I do, but I, that I find endlessly inspiring. It's, it's this sort of group of people that have been doing uh, initiation rituals for young people. Most of them are the United States. Most of them have been doing this. Some of them have been doing this for, you know, since the 60s. So these people don't work with plants, obviously. They work with young people. But they, everything else is very, very similar to the situation with, with, with ayahuasca, in which they, they're taking a lot of inspiration from indigenous groups because indigenous groups were the only ones that were still doing initiation rituals for young people. We, we lost this. So they started by looking at indigenous groups, and they started by copying they started by copying, you know, they heard that indigenous group would do this and they would put the kids like this and they would just do the same thing. And then when the kids came back, they sang this song and then they would sing the same song. Right? It's normal. It's sort of human nature. But because they have 40 years or more doing this ahead of people doing ayahuasca, they actually ha also have time to learn from their mistakes. And they begin to realize exactly this, that it wasn't about the song that was sung to the kids when they came back. What was happening there was not that this song was sung. Yes, that song was being sung, was sung, but something else was happening. So they begin to realize that, you know, you can, you know, most initiation rituals has to do with taking young people and putting them in a difficult situation, removing them from the society, putting them into some sort of difficult situation. It can be quite brutal in some indigenous groups, you know, and then they are brought back into the society. The, the, the kids are pushed to find their inner resources and their inner strength, you know, in those, in that, in that initiation and then they come back a different person because they've had to sort of overcome overcome themselves overcome you know through this so it is possible it's not difficult to get kids from our culture you know western kids and take them to the woods for a few days and make them go through something that would be you know culturally equivalent for us you know we can't get kids you know beaten by you know, bees and, you know, and terrible ants and, you know, and some of the things that happen there, you know, you know, the ordeal has to be a little bit different, but okay, make them go through an experience where they have to find their own resource and then we bring them back. And this part, they figure out fairly quickly, but then they realized that actually it was not working. It was not working as well as in indigenous groups. And the, the change was not so real. And then they begin to think, well, maybe it's the song that they sang afterwards. But it's not the song that they sang afterwards, they realize. What happened afterwards was not that the song was being sung. What sang afterwards is that the entire community witnessed and acknowledged the change that these young people had gone through. And they would change their names, you know, they would give them new roles. They would. So this part, 
you know, the being witness through the transformation is an integral part of the transformation. We think that it's just a form. We think that you have to take, you know, somebody and put them through a difficult period, and that's the initiation. And indeed, this is a big part of the initiation. But there's another big part that has to do with how the initiation is being witnessed by the community. And that's what makes it actually fully active, right? So... At first, they try to, again, copy this, they sing the song, and then they realize, no, this is about, you know, acknowledging this, and how can we do this in a way that that is uh, uh, within our cultural boundaries? So what they did is, when the kids return and the, uh, from this sort of camp, because it's sort of a summer camp, and the parents pick them up, then the parents are instructed that they have to greet the kids like they just met a new person. And the parents say, hello, uh, it's very nice to meet you. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you better. Right? This is the difference between being inspired by indigenous and traditional wisdom and learning the lessons and taking shapes and forms that don't belong to you and that you should never take. Right? This is not appropriation. Not really, right? Because this looks nothing like what happens in indigenous groups, and yet it's a, it's a. There's a, there's definitely a transmission here. This would not exist if this conversation and this relationship had not been established with indigenous. I mean, it wouldn't. None of this would have come up. You know, it totally comes from them, but it's not something that was taken from them. What was it? It's a, it's a, it's a process of inspiration. So. This is like sort of pivotal aspect of how I engage with the traditions, which I do all the time. You know, I take, I take, I take, uh, you know, most of my lessons, you know, that are in this course and most of the things that we uh, teach in the safety course and most of, most of the sort of, uh, and, and, uh, the, the minimum safety standards, the way we approach all of this has to do with exactly this. So we, we find, for example, that, you know, you, you, you know, deals around money, uh, questions around advertising, for example, the most interesting sort of insight that comes from there, uh, we have taken from, you know, the sort of how the Santo Daime deals with proselytism and how you should talk to your neighbors about, you know, your participation in the Santo Daime, for example. And there's, you know, and like this for just about everything, you know, we have, we can find, you know, sort of fantastic examples, uh, lessons uh, that come from the traditions, and yet they're not the, 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 the sort of the copying of the or the photocopying or the trying to sort of the rule the the, the copying the rules or the forms of this thing, but the sort of like the the the, the, the very profound sort of uh, wisdom about just sort of being human, you know, and sort of uh, you know approaches to humanity uh, and working with these plants that are already obviously all over the place in 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 the in the traditions in the people that have been engaging with these things with the longest. Obviously, you know, they know a lot, and they know a lot more than we do uh, because they've been doing this much longer than than we do. And there's some parts of it that we can really learn from, and there's some part of it that are somebody else's, you know, that's, it's somebody else's Bible, you know, and, and you absolutely have to, you know, 
with all the respect in the world and also with all the understanding that, you know, maybe after a lifetime, you would only begin to understand a very small part of something that for them is, you know, even common sense, you know, and still there is, there is, there is, there is a, you know, great benefit and, and, and personal growth that can come from this engagement as long as one maintains, you know, a, a certain, you know, a property in, in the relationship and an understanding of, you know, what is happening, you know, and what to, what, you know, how, how to learn, uh, how to learn from other cultures. Uh, very long answer again. <laughs> No, great, great. Yeah, it, it reminded me, I, I'm sitting here and uh, I have a framed copy of when I became an Eagle Scout, which uh, you may be familiar yeah. with, the, the yeah, Boy Scout. Yeah, they're, a big, they're a big part of that, yeah. And they, 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 yeah. they took a lot of inspiration also from indigenous uh, 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 groups. There was on the yeah. edge sometimes of, you know, of appropriation, but there was definitely, that was the reference. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and I and I often, as I get older, I, I think about how, how important a, a lot of that was, and how formative it was mm -hmm. of of just learning to to be in nature, to to learn what plants are useful, what plants to avoid, how, how to start a fire, how to how to find water, how to purify water, how to uh, you know principles like like always leave the campsite or the trail in a better state than when you found it and not even the same but better you know pick up that piece of trash that that maybe someone else left um really learning how to push yourself to to hike for a week where you're carrying everything on your on your back and and then even some of the more advanced things when i finished like being dropped off in the middle of the woods with a knife for a few days and uh right. you know a very similar thing and then when you're finished you you have a title that's actually very important i mean it's uh, very few people achieve that and then that's who you are and you know maybe you have a, a sash or a a card or something that, that you can show and, and 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 then there is that there's also as you said there's a recognition by by that community of like wow this person has achieved something very similar to martial arts with with like a belt system and and, and then you're addressed in a different way and and you can see that people do have a different respect for you and it it, it changes people um one of the other things that, that I think is interesting that, that, that you and I see seem to do really well is is find this balance, as you said, between really working with and, and, and honoring these principles of, of where these plants come from and, and defending those traditions, offering legal support often even, uh, but, but having like in the background, a deep knowledge and a deep respect, you know, everyone who I've met who's been at ICERS has either lived or worked with uh, various indigenous groups and, and has a real, I would say, reverence for, for that work, um, which I think is really important. And yet not proclaiming that, that I'm a shaman or I'm putting feathers in my head and, um, and and it kind of leads to this question, which I think a lot of people maybe have confusion about or, or have issue with or concerns, which is even as we bring this work into a more Western context, how to find that balance between honoring, as you said, the, these principles that are very human, um, which, you know, in, in many specs, maybe even these plants help us to learn about our own traditions, our, our own principles that we've forgotten. 
So on the one hand, that more, for lack of better words, what we would call traditional or indigenous aspect. And as you said, there are certain things that maybe we're never going to understand, certain cosmovisions, certain beliefs. Uh, but how these plants are often being inserted into our culture now is through this very psycholo psychologized model. Uh, even a lot of the words we use, uh, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy. So it has this therapeutic connotation, or we, we use a lot of these words like trauma or shadow sides. It's very much within the psychological model, which I also don't think is, is, is inherently separate from an indigenous model. But it's, it's putting a lot of the focus on one, I think, very specific aspect within a much larger, as you were saying, within an indigenous model, that's certainly an aspect. If someone comes down and they have trauma, they may say, oh, well, that person has susto, or the people may say that person has ratu. But they probably wouldn't say that's everything. Like if we solve their trauma, then that's the goal of this medicine. That, that's its, that's its, <laughs> its sole function. There's a much deeper understanding of what this plant can do. Um, so where do you find that balance between um, these plants, maybe in a more holistic sense, and putting these plants in, in a very particular model, which, which in the West I think we would call like a more psychological model, and, and, and all of the, the, the worldview, the cosmovision, the terminology, the linguistics, the, the ways in which we work that, that come with that? And again, I know that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, that's what I call the amputation, right? So the, the, the amputation is what happens, for example, when yoga, which is sort of a, a, a physical training in a path for a spiritual enlightenment, um, arrives to our society and gets put in a gym and turned into something that is much closer to a sort of a physical activity in order to have, you know, less stress and a more beautiful body. Um, it's, 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 not, it's not, of course, that this is not great and important, but it is an, an amputation. It is, it is, it is a sort of, it's, 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 it, 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 it has reduced the original to something that, you know, uh, us, and especially our marketplace, uh, can sort of absorb or, or deal with. Um, similarly, you know, there's a wider process going on, what is being, what is being called the psychologization of life. There's a couple of good articles about this that have been written that sort of, you know, reduces uh, uh, everything not just to trauma, but generally to psychology. You know, it's the language of psychology that has sort of been appropriated and it's been used for absolutely everything. Um, and of course, you know, that the, the life is much wider than your individual psyche, trauma, whatever. And this is, you know, what indigenous, you know, this is, you know, always comes as a big lesson to anybody who engages with, for some time with, with indigenous sort of knowledge or, or, or people is that, you know, they actually have a much wider sort of concern that is not just themselves, you know, and their process and their evolution. And it's something that stands between themselves, you know, people say that, you know, in one of these sort of courses, they said, you know, that white people have no sense of people. You know, when you ask them, you know, who is your people, they would say, you know, well, you know, my family and my friends, you know, and then from there, they will directly jump all the way to humanity. 
all of humanity. You know, there's my sort of my my affinity group, all my friends and my family and the people that I care about. And then the next group is, you know, all of humanity I care for. But between your family and affinity group and all of humanity, there is something that stands in the middle. That is your community, is your people, is your culture, your tradition, where you come from, who your people are. You know. And this we have lost progressively. This is also sort of an effect of Many things of capitalism. I, could, I'm not, I won't go into details. It's simply a fact. Um, of course, this is not the case for you know, actually most of the world, because most of the world is not does not live in you know in Western developed you know industrial countries. Quite the opposite. So these these sort of these sort of links are much more um, uh, clear. You know, it's not. And they've been always clear in history. So, you know, in a sense, the oddity is us. So it's like how, as an oddity, that we are historical, sociological, economic, uh, 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 spiritual, uh, uh, you name it, oddity, uh, uh, do we, you know, sort of... uh, How do we learn how the rest of the world lives? Because this is really... You know, it's happening. I had to give a, a talk very, you know, many, many years ago at sort of the beginning of this process, you know, and I sort of explain about my own sort of fascination with shamanism and 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 and, 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 and plants and, and how I went and went quite deep into the Amazon and these different places looking for these shamans and from these plants and, you know, and, and at the end, you know, you know, uh, uh, all I found is how the rest of the world lives, you know, and goes to the doctor. You know, uh, uh, you know, sort of, you know, very, very, you know, not, not, not even the rest of the world, but you know, certainly a very, very large part of the world, and certainly, you know, most of humanity. If we, if you, if we go into the past, right? So, you know, it's not. There's nothing, you know, even remotely uh, 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 special, you know, or exotic. There, you know, what's really strange and exotic is nuclear medicine. You know, that's a rarity in our sort of history, tradition, whatever. You know, people curing with plants and spirits. <laughs> this is like this is the this is the 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 heritage of humanity. I mean this is this is this is this is absolutely everywhere and it's been everywhere for so many, you know, thousands of years. Right. so at the end, you know, us as the exception or just looking back, trying to find something that is rare or exotic or disappearing and all we're finding is not. this is this is this this is the norm, and this has been the norm, you know, uh, uh, forever. You know, <laughs> uh, um, it's it's. Um, <laughs> but I I uh, I lost the question. <laughs> where where um, I think I think I think you were you were you were asking about the um... the psychological model. Oh, the, the psychological model, right? So, because we have lost of all of, all of these things, then again, we do the, the amputation is what happens. Thank, thank you. So, as we take these things, then just like yoga went into the gym, you know, we tend to take these things and say, okay, oh, these are medicines. So, these are medicines. This is for doctor, and these are the diseases that these medicines treat. You know, but of course, that's not at all what these things are. You know, they're not they're not medicines in the way that antibiotics or anti-inflammatory uh, things are. You know, this this is not something you know that in 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 every way this challenges. You know, every aspect of what we believe our medicines are it challenges. You know, the sort of the the the, the symptom, the, the idea that medicines make symptoms go away. 
because these are substances that usually makes increase the symptoms you know so you know it 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 challenges uh, 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 the fact that these are medicines that the doctors themselves are supposed to take which you know is so sort of you know outrageous in our culture <laughs> you know and in some cases only the doctors take these medicines not the patients you know these are these are uh, these 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 are medicines where like any attempt to do sort of do double blind placebo studies like you know sort of you know implodes right so you know this you know thing cannot be ruled out not in the way that we do with other things these are things and then and most importantly these these are sort of plants that just sort of blow you know either we need to make the concept of medicine much much wider you know or we have to accept that these things are a lot more than medicines because they because they because most of the people taking these plants even in our societies don't have a medical diagnosis they're not the stuff of doctors not really most people are you know they don't have they wouldn't have a medical diagnosis so you know why are they taking these plants and these psychedelics well because they are engaging process of you know self knowledge in processes of you know meaning making personal uh, sort of understanding a self autobiographical you know a spiritual development i mean i don't know you can call it a hundred names and you're still falling short of the, of the totality of what is happening here so the amputation you know which is you know the 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 you know, one another sort of issue that I have with the current sort of you know psychedelic renaissance or the medicalization of psychedelics is that it's absolute amputation of the of the of the of the potential you know and the actual uses of these substances that have always been a lot more than medicines because for other people they're sacraments for other people they're vehicles of you know collective and in the, and, and, and identity making you know for you know there's so much more but because we are there are so much more in areas that we have lost, you know, starting with the sort of collective community identity making thing that, you know, we, we sort of, it's been diluted, you know, it's, it, it's just family, you know, and, and followed by this, this sort of idea that, there, you know, the very, very narrow vision of what medicine is and very, very narrow mission of what doctors do, you know, or, you know, a, a broader sort of loss of the sort of understanding in which things have gotten compartmentalized. So religion and spirituality stands over here, medicine and therapy stands over here, and then this other thing that you, I don't know what to call it, education for adults, you know, how to live, right? This stands over here. And these for us are three completely different things with three completely different specialists, uh, uh, and, and they never meet. You know, God forbid we're going to put together religion and, 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 and medicine, you know, or, you know, you know, and yet these substances, you know, have aspects, you know, key aspects of all of these things. At the very least, you know, I'm living here, you know, creativity, you know, a bunch of other things, you know, but, but at, at, you know, very, very roughly, you know, we, we are presented with something, you know that in the indigenous context, it's all of these things at the same time. It's a spirituality, it's therapeutic, and it's something, it's community, it's something that has to do with the community, and it has to do with just how the individual becomes a person and figures out how to live, you know, with him or herself, you know, with his or her neighbors, you know, with the rest of the community, with nature at large, 
you know, and with their history and their ancestors and good God, right? It's like, it's so broad, right? That sort of this, this, and then, you know, this idea of, you know, non-specific amplifiers, which is, you know, this idea I do like. I think it's very, it's a very sort of ugly scientific concept to say exactly this, you know, non-specific amplifiers of what absolutely everything, you know, potentially within the human experience, you know, such large aspects of it, you know. And now we're going to take these non-specific amplifiers and say, no, no, they're not, they're actually, you know, therapeutic tools for mental health problems. It's like, wow, you know, <laughs> for sure they are, uh, for sure they are. Um, I just, I, 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 and I'm happy they're going to be used as such. I would be concerned if opening that door would close all the others. Because if we decide that these are pharmaceutical drugs that only psychiatrists can prescribe, you know, to people who have a, a psychiatric diagnosis, like, you know, post, post-traumatic stress disorder, long-term depression, whatever. Uh, if we decide that's all they are, then that's all they will become. And then people who don't have a, a psychiatric diagnosis won't have access to it. Indigenous people who have been using them for thousands of years won't be able to work with them outside of the countries because, you know, this would be medical sort of Quakerism and they would be practicing medicine without a license or, 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 or dishing prescription medicines without, you know, the proper degree. Right. I mean, there's an, there's so many sort of doors that close, you know, as that single door opens. Um, and this is and this is the this is the amputation. Uh, and this is this is this is the part where this again, this sort of this dialogues with the cultures of origin, with indigenous people, with indigenous cultures, you know, from a very from a place of you know humility and respect, but also from a place of you know, of, 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 of relationship, of reciprocity can be so rich, right? To sort of, again, there's, you know, there's a lot of lessons and wisdom there uh, um, if we care to learn and listen. Yeah, yeah, beautiful answer. One of the distinctions you, you make for this course is that it's uh, it's for people who are already facilitating in a ceremonial context, and I think that's a, a really interesting distinction. And um, I think many people now, for for better, for worse, for, for good reasons or maybe not so good reasons, are interested in doing this work. Um, does ICers have have a policy of, 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 of because, again, it, it, you know, as you just alluded to, it's such a complex path really mm -hmm. for lack of a better word um is there any sort of like official direction they point people to and and then also on a personal level what what what, what would you say to someone who who comes to you and is like you know i i really want to work with plants or i really want to be a facilitator or you know maybe even humbly like this is really calling me people maybe i've been doing this work or something and, and people seem to be interested but i don't know if i'm ready do you do you have anything that, that that you would you would say to someone like that i mean in 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 terms of in terms of why this course is for uh people that are already facilitating um there's two reasons one is that this course is specially indicated for people who feel that they don't need this course. So if you think that you're already facilitating and this course is not for you because you've been doing this for many years, this course is absolutely for you. And I guarantee that you will learn things that you didn't know. 
Um, so you know that's 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 and this is and these people are not being served right now. The people that already have experience, uh, uh, to the degree that they feel that they already that they don't need a safety course. You know, so that's that's one reason why the why the course is for for experienced facilitators. The other reason is because also a lot of most of, all of the contents on this course would also benefit people who are just starting or who they don't know, or who don't know anything. For sure. We are concerned that people would think that because they took this course, now they're ready. And that's the reason why this course is not for people who are just starting or for people who want to learn. Because this is not a course that is going to prepare you in any way <laughs> to begin to do this. So we, we, for the same reason that I said about, you know, because there's no practice, for the same reason, it's all theory. It would be like learning surgery in an, in an online course. So, okay, if you're already a surgeon, this is going to be useful for you. If you're starting or you want to be a surgeon, this course might give you a false sense of, 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 uh, of, uh, of ability. And we want, and we, and we absolutely want to avoid that. So that, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the double reason for this. And then in, in, ter in terms of what we tell people who, um, you know, and we get this question all the time. All the time we get this question, you know, where can I learn? And also, you know, where, where is a, a safe place for me to drink ayahuasca or a good place for me to drink? Or can you recommend a center? You know, this is, we get this question all the time. Of course, as an institution, we cannot answer this question. We cannot direct or tell people anywhere. We can tell them, you know, this is, if you're going to do this, this is what you should know. These are the types of questions that you should ask. And this will help you make an informed decision. And please do make an informed decision. But we cannot direct people one place or another because for many reasons. But I mean, sort of very roughly speaking, as an organization, we are at the service of the collective, of the whole collective. You know, we don't, we don't in our work, in an institutional work, we don't, we don't play uh, 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 sides. We cannot. We, we, we actually engage with just about everybody. Uh, now, in our own personal path, I've been drinking ayahuasca many years, you know, 20 years. Many of us in ICERS have. Many of us, all of us in ICERS have our own sort of personal path that we have followed with concrete groups or with concrete people. This is never part of the public discourse. People are very often very curious and they ask us, but where, who do you drink with? Right? That's not a question that I answer publicly and I can't for many reasons. You know, A, because the people I drink with they don't need the advertising and they get they will get absolutely no benefit from this getting out two because the work that i do is not just for the people that i drink for the entire collective and again my personal preferences are not should not be an issue in the work that i do because my work is for the collective uh, and it's important that I have my personal preferences and it's important that I have, you know, my, my tradition, the group of people that I drink with my own practice. It's absolutely key. I wouldn't be here doing this work if I didn't have this. But this has to stay in the private realm, not in the institutional or public realm, uh, because it would actually harm both my practice and the public and the public aspect of my work. Um, with, with, with that said, for the, in terms of, you know, people that, you know, feel a very honest call, um, I think if you start taking plants, 
everybody at one point or another will feel this call. You know, I think this is also important to be, this should, I think, be part of the education and be put on the table. I mean, at least I have, and I think most everybody I've, I've met have felt this call. Everybody will feel this call at one point or another. Um, usually, it's at the beginning. And usually, it has to do not so much with a call, but with a deep desire, an inner desire, a want. You know, that comes when you get ex when you get exposed to something that can be so uh, transformative and so beautiful and so meaningful and so important. It might make your, the rest of your life seem like, you know, a waste of time, whatever, then th that this is really what you want and because this is where the importance or the meaning lies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is completely normal. It should be part of the, I think it should be part of the education. Now, that's different from what I would call sort of a, a genuine call to service, and especially the type of service, you know, that comes from this work, which, you know, I sometimes describe as, 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 as uh, you know, the, 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 the less fancy part of this work, it's more like spiritual plumbing than anything else. I mean, you're going to just sort of go into people's spiritual cesspools, you know, sometimes, and just, you know, and, and you have to deal with this, you know, one time, I was um, in a ceremony in Peru, and next to me there was this Peruvian police officer. And it was the first time that this person, this man, had drunk ayahuasca. And I don't know what this man had done in his, in his life. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that when this person drank ayahuasca, and he began to feel the effects, he began to scream like, I, I don't know, it really sounded like... like uh, it really sounded like a woman being eaten alive by devils. I'm sorry to be so graphic, because but that's what it sounded. The, the, the shrieking, you know, the level of it's indescribable. I mean, I can't even. It's it was crazy. This person was right next to me. It was really, really awful. It was very difficult to sit next to this person. I couldn't. I was turn my back as far as I could, and, and you know, so to be facing this sort of. Blech, that was coming out of there, you know, uh, 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 as little as possible, you know, and just sort of, you know, it, it was awful. And then, you know, after some time of this screaming, you know, I could see the curanderos, you know, across the Maloca, you know, sort of, you see the sort of black profiles, you know, you see in the darkness. And I saw one curandero sort of stand up very, very slowly, you know, sort of stand up and very slowly walk towards this cop. You know, and it, everything in the curandero's body language said, you know, these are the days when I hate my job type of thing. Like, right? Like, I, <laughs> I'm really not looking forward to approaching this person, you know. And then, you know, he went and he put his hand on the head of this cop. And then, uh, and then he, uh, and then, and then he proceeded to do a, a healing, you know. And I and I was I was I was watching all this, and I thought, oh my God, you know, I can't even um, I can't even sit next to this person, and this guy, this healer, actually has to touch him, you know, and uh, and that's and that's you know that was for me sort of a, a point where I realized that uh, that. Uh, that this that this that this job was not for me.
that this just that this job was not for me and that also you know this job you know the less glamorous parts of this job will not be for everybody um, but this is it, it it also takes some time to see this so so you know in in, term, in terms of what I would tell um, somebody who comes to me and, uh, um, you know, in terms of what I would tell somebody who comes to me and say that they have. All right, great. Well, we had a, we had a small technical problem there. Um, hopefully the, the last part of what you were talking about, uh, came through. Um, if, if not, do you want to just finish that story? I, I lost you when, when the Peruvian police officer was, was screaming, uh, like a woman at the top of his lungs. Uh, I think that's when, when, when you cut out yeah. for me. Yeah, basically, yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible to be next to this person. I had my back turned like this, you know, and just couldn't deal with this, whatever it was that was coming out of there. It was very, very difficult to sit next to this person. And then I was watching the curanderos, you know, across the Maloca, and, you know, I saw one of them, you know, just a sort of dark profile, stand up very, very slowly, you know, like, like, and then walk towards the police officer very, very slowly, like you were about to do something you really don't feel like doing it, you know, everything in the body language made me feel like this is one of those days when you sort of hate your job, right, to hate, and then, you know, he stood in front of the police officer and just push, and then went, bam, and put his hand on top of a guy's head, and, you know, started the healing and, 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 and I was thinking, good God, you know, I can't even stand sitting next to this person and this guy has to touch him, you know, and that's when I realized, you know, this job, you know, uh, it takes a certain, you know, people, I think, I think, I think people are often, you know, especially at the beginning, not aware of the least, of the less glamorous aspects of this job. And there's a lot of non-glamorous aspects to this job. Um, so, um, again, just like you have to be fully informed before you try ayahuasca and decide it's for you. I think people should be fully informed before they decide that, you know, that, you know, facilitating or that, or that this process is, is for them. Certainly when I was fully informed, I decided that it wasn't for me. And, uh, and I found other, uh, other ways of being of service to the plants that didn't mean serving the plants. Um, as in serving, uh, uh, um, I, 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 that, that, that's sort of the, that, 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 that's sort of the advice. I mean, I, I feel this, this sort of, I have a, I have a lot of respect for this profession. You know, I think it's, you know, similar to many other sort of vocational professions, you know, from music to, you know, to the arts, to, you know, certain sports and stuff. You know, a lot of people are called and yet not many people actually can, you know, go through the sort of rigorous and long, long training that it takes to be able to, you know, do this, you know, perform, perform, perform this activity at a professional level. Um, uh, I think also people don't realize and we go a lot and I will tie it to the course now, you know, one, another sort of example, and that's another example of, 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 of a lesson or a learning that comes from the traditions, you know, you see very often in the traditions that, you know, people that end up doing this work, working with these plants, they go through a very long sort of training, 
and it's very rigorous and it's very hard and it's full of both, you know, becoming very knowledgeable or very personally, having a lot of personal experience with the plant and the plants. So you're not doing a lot of that. Uh, that's one important part. And then the other part that is very important has to do with certain restrictions and dietas, you know, which are also, uh, you know, sort of a, a cultural uh a cultural aspect, but that there is a sort of universal, I think, lesson there that has to do with discipline. You know, a lot of the work of, you know, in the Amazon, for example, of curanderos, a lot of their training has to do with basically not being able to do what they would like. They cannot eat certain foods for a very long time. They cannot have sex for a very long time. They cannot have certain drinks. They cannot have, you know, so it's a lot of you can't have this, you know, and there's a whole lot of that. And it goes on for years. You know, and there is, you know, you know, a spiritual, energetic, you know, aspects to it with certain things cannot be mixed with plants. But there's another, you know, at the same level, there's another, you know, aspect of it that is very down to earth. And it has to do with teaching people to tell themselves no. Why? Because with this power comes a lot of temptation. And then if the person hasn't learned to say no to their drives, whether it's hunger or horniness or, you know, or, or whatever, then, then, you know, as one is sort of carried by the power of these substances, you know, it's very tempting sometimes for this power to go, to, 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 to get abused. Right. So, so, you know, that's another, that's another sort of, you know, example of how, you know, the, the, the lessons that are there are universal, you know, and then the sort of the, the, the and then there's the, 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 the sort of the, the unique sort of cultural answers as well. Um, I think that's perhaps one of the most sort of over, overlooked or misunderstood aspects of this training, just how much discipline a factors in, you know, it's not about, you know, that your dietas are very long or very short, which it also is, but it's about you know, what, you know, what, you know, Makuna Shaman told me, you know, whether, whether or not you can become the master of your own thoughts and that, that it, it, it has, it has to do, it's another way of talking about this. It's another, it's, it's another way of, of talking about there's certain very, there's certain power that comes with this and power needs, requires a, a, a very strong will. Um, so that it, so that one can be in that power and not be tempted by you know by your hunger you know whether it's for food or for sex or for power or for manipulation or for whatever you know the, 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 we all we all have this this is again these are sort of human aspects. Um, um, this. Oh. And with this, I'm going to close because I've, I've, I've spoken too long. This is also part of uh, the stuff, the kind of stuff that we talk about in this course. So, you know, if you found what I said interesting <laughs> and you are already uh, a person that works with uh, with plants and you would want to, would you, would you would like to, you're interested in this and you would like to hear more of it, uh, I thoroughly recommend that you sign up for the course uh, that we have. We will include the link. There's going to be a lot more of this, you know, all of this having to do with, you know, the dangers, with the relationships, with the role of the facilitators, with the responsibilities of the participants, with vulnerable participants, with uh, interactions with medicines, you know, but, but basically, you know, sort of a wide range. It's a six-month course, but it only takes a couple of hours a week of work. So we wanted to, we stretch it. We 
made it deeper. We made it, you know, we flattened it so it wouldn't be too much at once. Uh, we worked, there are scholarships available. We made it very, we worked very hard to make it accessible economically. And, uh, it's the second year we do it. The first year went very well. People were very happy. And, you know, we would continue to do this every year. And, uh, yeah. And if this sounds interesting, please join. And thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very yeah. much. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link um, in the show notes to, to where people sign up. Um, this is probably going to be released, uh, I believe it's Wednesday, April 19th. And, and you said the cutoff date was the, the 25th? Yeah. Is, it, is, for, is it the 27th? Is it April 27th? 27th. Is, the, is the last day to send uh, applications. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eronimo. It's always a pleasure to, to to talk to you, to prick your brain a little bit. Uh, like, like I said, I, I have a lot of respect for ICERs and, and the work they're doing in this organization, and and also very much for you. I, I think you speak very beautifully, very very humbly, uh, and, and and very much from a place of wisdom of, of kind of seeing things from both sides. And and I, I think that's that's very rare, uh, not just in this field, but but kind of in in society in general. So I. I, I really applaud you for not only for the work you're doing, but 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 for who you are and the, the presence you hold. I, I think it's very valuable, and and I hope people um, you know really really listen to what you say because I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. Uh, this this plant medicine facilitation work, as you said, it, it's very much not easy, and it, it's often not glamorous, and um, and I think it is really important to to, to understand it on on many different layers. Uh, as, as my main teacher said, uh, um, he's a man of very few words, but he said, curandero no es he, 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 ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and it took yeah. me a long time to, to really understand the depth of, of what he was saying. It's, um, it's, it's a whole universe. I mean, even kind of the name of this podcast, the universe within it's, it's, there's a whole universe there. So I, I think you, the, the work you're doing, bringing awareness to this and, and just all of the, the, the wisdom, the safety protocols, it's, it's all for the best. And, um, you know, I, I know some of these things can be controversial and complicated and what do you do and what do you don't do? What do you teach and what you don't teach? But I think the more exposure that's brought, um, it's, it's just, it, it's for the best. So, so I thank you very much for your work, Geronimo, and I thank you for uh, for coming on and, and for inviting me to, to, to do this interview. And, uh, and and I wish you all the best, and I, I hope we keep in touch. Thank you, and thank you very much for you know, all your kind words and, and also for the work that you do creating a platform, you know, where people can speak and share these ideas, so that these things can circulate, you know, and be put out there. Uh, you know, so you, you're also you know, creating spaces for all of these ideas to get out and, you know, people to talk. So, you know, thank you very much for, for the work with, you know, that you're doing and for giving me the space and to be able to talk about these things. So, uh, yeah, a, a very good well, Great, one. my friend. Well, and, thank you very much. We'll talk soon. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed sitting down and, and talking with him. Um, I, I really enjoyed our last conversation. So I, I, I imagined uh, this one would go just as well. And, and I really think it did. Um, so yeah, thank you all for the support. Again, um, I, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. There, there was a lot there. I think a lot of really uh, vital and useful information uh, as this wor work begins to expand itself out to the to the world at large. 
large and and kind of as he said at the beginning uh, really um, potentially even become part of uh, the, the of cultures around the world um where a lot of these plants might not have originated from, but as it expands out, very much becoming integrated into cultures at large. Uh, and so that brings up a lot of uh, points and issues and, you know, all of these things we discussed of standardization and better practices and and, and, and all of these things. So uh, thank you all for the support. Uh, if you feel like you're gaining something from this podcast and you'd like to give back, Patreon is a really good option. It's a website and you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Also, those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much for your support. Um, uh, if you're able to do that, also, thank you very much. Uh, again, as I mentioned in the intro, one of the things I really like about that site is it works on this idea of reciprocity. So if you feel like you're gaining something uh, from this podcast, then uh, that's a beautiful way to give back. If you're not able to support in that way, um, as always, helping with the algorithms uh, really helps the show to get out to a bigger audience. So if you're viewing this on YouTube, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the videos, uh, the video version is also on Spotify now and Rumble. Um, and then if you're listening to this, the audio version um, on Apple Podcasts, leaving a start rating and a short review and uh, on Spotify or the other platforms following or subscribing to the show. So uh, I think that's it for this episode. Uh, the next episode is going to be with my friend and uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu teacher, Bruno Momeni. That was a, a really interesting conversation about martial arts, jiu-jitsu, luta libre. Um, after that, uh, I have a conversation with another friend of mine who I also met through jiu-jitsu. His name is uh, John Wood, and he does um, work with somatic therapy, and that was really fascinating conversation. Uh, we, we talked about his background, uh, kind of almost becoming a member of a cult and, and that mentality and, and some of the pitfalls um, and his work with somatic therapy and the, the benefits of that and, and how that really seems to go very well hand in hand with plant medicine work. Um, I hope to bring on a local Cardo gentleman who I've worked with. His name is Vitor. Um, and so that should be a really fascinating conversation about the, the Cardo culture and the work that he does. Um, and some other people as well I have lined up. Oh, uh, Joe Moore from Psychedelics Today. I was on his podcast a while back. He'll also be coming on. So uh, I'm actually headed to Portugal and Ireland soon to run uh, dietas. Uh, so I'm trying to shoot a number of these in advance. Um, and yeah, also on another note, uh, probably by the time this comes out, uh, I guess there would still be time. Uh, we do have a couple spots left for Portugal, uh, Ireland. Uh, I th we're almost sold out, although I think the second week we, we still have one spot available. So if that is interest to anyone... Uh, doing a dieta, going deeper into the world of plant medicine. Uh, myself and my colleague Marav Artsy will be in Portugal in May. Um, 
Ireland in June, then we have a little break, and then we're going to the U.S. So we'll be in Colorado, I think the end of July, and New York State in August, uh, and then we're going to be back in Peru um, and running dietas here in November. So also, if anyone uh, is interested in that, they can check out my website, which I'll also put a link to in the show notes, which is nicotianarustica.com, or .org, sorry, <laughs> don't even know my own website, uh, but there you can find uh, a lot of information about that. So I've been talking a lot. Thank you all for tuning in. Again, I hope you enjoyed this show. I hope this finds you all well, and I will see you all on the next episode. Thank mm-hmm. you.